Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Join us in person or online for Canada's only occult conference. Visit Vancouver in beautiful British Columbia and help us leave lockdowns behind us and get back to life. The first of four D and Kelly conferences over the next four years support the Arcane Research Society in bringing excellence in academic scholarship and practical knowledge from some of the best scholars and occultists in the field. Featuring in 2024 this summer, Dr. Terry Burns, translator of Dr. John Dee's famous Monus Hieroglyphica. Dr. Burns has just completed a 52-video course on this mystical text, which you can watch on YouTube for free. Join us and experts Rufus Opus, P.D. Newman, J. Allen Moore, Daniel Rekshan, Frater R.C., and more for this exciting event which will explore the angelic and spirit-filled world of Elizabethan mages, Dr. John Dee, and the alchemist Sir Edward Kelly. Learn the secrets of drawing spirits into crystals, conjuration, and Enochian angel magic, as well as the role of dreams and their connections to these other extra-dimensional realities and alchemical transformation. Sign up today to attend online or in person, at enochiacon.com presented by the arcane research society all right all right let's do this welcome yes. to magic without fears marcus good to see you man and hopefully we can have as uh, fun a conversation on the record as we have off um so like let's just pretend we're this isn't real and we don't exist and nothing's happening and we're just having a, a moment of you know dialogue Oh, genuine human connection on the internet? Yeah, that would be yeah. lovely. If you want to yeah, say a few things about yourself, I guess, for some oh, yeah. So to introduce myself, uh, my name is Marcus Mattern. I teach ceremonial magic. I run a Facebook group with uh, 8,000 members this year and growing. And uh, it's been taking off really amazingly. Um, and I really love magic. I have been uh, practicing um ceremonial magic every day for uh, five years now and that's been really a completely life-changing event for me and in the process of that i've attained uh the knowledge and conversation of my holy guardian angel changed my complete life and everything that i do is built toward helping my clients to align with the true will start to develop a relationship with their holy guardian angel and start to have some of that energy into their life um, because i find repeatedly that the more we focus on what we actually want to be doing, uh, the more we start to separate from the influences of friends and family, which, however helpful, are not always for the best, uh, or genuine and authentic to us, and also the influences of advertising, advertising the government and everything else, which are not always in our best interests. And when we individuate ourselves in that way, we can start to really live uh, in a way that's more in alignment with what we want to be doing in this world and just be happier. I, I've just, I was so miserable before I started practicing magic. And uh, yeah, it's just allowed me to find positive engagement in the world in a way I never thought possible beforehand. So yeah, that's what I do. I teach magic, help people to find their true selves. And that is me. Yeah, wonderful. And, and yeah, and you have, it is a good Facebook group. I can say that for everyone listening and um, that we're going to pretend you're not here after this. So we can actually have a real conversation. Uh, of course, 
but yeah, some of my students were very active in that and that's really nice. It seems like a healthy environment. So that's great. Yeah. It's good to see. I, I try to, obviously, as you know, I, I try to avoid Facebook and, uh, so it's really good that there's still good things going on there. I check in once in a while because there's such good things going on there sort of sometimes. Uh, right, oh, with groups like yours and some of the other. I mean, it's it is a very effective place for uh, communities of us to come together and share information and share our work and documents and talk about ideas and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. you know. Also it's, organize uh, organize events. I started the whole Facebook group based on hosting yeah. Zoom meetings to perform ceremonial magic with people because magic can be so lonely. And I wanted friends. And eventually, <laughs> after enough work with my own Drew Will, I realized, hey, I don't have to wait for permission for somebody else to start doing this. I can just start doing this and ask who wants to do it with me. And immediately I had people joining in. And it's been going for, yeah, over a year now that we've been doing weekly ceremonial magic online. And uh, just even sharing the online space, you can really feel the energy. Uh, it's been really transformative for us. Yeah, so because you brought this up, mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about this. Let's get into it a bit. You brought up True Will and the Holy Guardian Angel. And because technically yeah. I, I come from out of the Golden Dawn tradition, and technically we don't really have that. So, of yeah. course, that language would get sometimes used by people, um, yeah. especially, you know, at Temple Tehuti where I was trained. And, mm-hmm. and people would come in having read all kinds of different things. And, of course, back in the 90s, there was a much clear, less clear distinction, especially in the popular imagination between uh, mm-hmm. what Crowley uh, was teaching and what the Golden Dawn represented. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was yeah. very hard to distinguish those two for a lot of people because mm-hmm. all we knew of the Golden Dawn was from Rigardi, who was, of course, mm-hmm. highly influenced by Crowley, right? He, he, yeah. he kind of took Crowley's uh, occasional hypothesis of magic being all psychological. And I say occasional because it seemed like just an occasion in which this, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Libras do, they just sort of say, hey, now I'm this, or I think this now. And <laughs> they're just testing it out and balancing it out before they hand it off to the next air sign for perfection, totally. right? In the same way the Geminis are the the creators of many, many thoughts, yeah. or at least symbolically. And so, you know, Crowley had this idea, and Rigardi, you can tell Rigardi loved the idea because he's like, okay, he left Crowley and became mm-hmm. a psychotherapist, right? Yeah, yeah. Crowley's like, Crowley. maybe magic's all in our head, and Crowley, Rigardi's like, I'm, I got it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and run with it all the way. And thank God he did, honestly, because... Mm-hmm. Magic does have a psychological side, a heavy psychological yes. component to it. Mm-hmm. That's a huge piece of it. So to just study it on those terms alone is super valuable. But mm-hmm. what do you? What does it mean then for you, the Holy Guardian Angel and True Will? And what did it mean in the context of a five-year journey for you mm-hmm. outside of any uh, formal structures? As far as I know, I believe you just were. You yes. took advantage of the opportunity we have these days of all uh-huh. the and courses and things you can do. Yes. Braille yeah. for Hecate. You can do Jason Miller for Hecate. You can read yeah. Jake Kent or Stephen Skinner for Hecate. You can basically mm-hmm. study Hecate anywhere. Yeah, totally. Okay. okay. So that, I, my that, journey started. That's mm-hmm. where I thought it was going to end up. So I meant to say there's a lot of different kinds of things you can study and they don't all have to do with Hecate. And you availed yourself of all these different things. And had uh came to where you are now so yeah a little bit about that journey just so let's talk i want to talk about that let's talk about that oh absolutely so yeah um i started off reading john michael greer's books I started off first with monsters which is a fantastic book um because he talks about ghosts and 
uh, angels and demons and all kinds of supernatural entities in a way that is surprisingly skeptical to where it talks about if you think you're seeing a spirit, you might not be seeing a spirit. Here's all the things that it could be instead of a spirit. If you've ruled out all these other possibilities, here's what the traditional lore says about your types of experiences. And that was so refreshing to me because a lot of it's so different than what I find a lot of new agey content in particular when it comes to talking about uh, encounters with supernatural entities or entities that people are just not aware of. And uh, through that, I started reading more of his work, started to read his work on Golden Dawn magic, magic specifically, Circles of Power, Paths of Wisdom, Learning Ritual Magic. And uh, those three books basically became my entire school of magic. Uh, I learned uh, how the overall structure of Hermetic, Hermetic Kabbalah through that. And started practicing on my own, started to really embrace the um, hands-on approach to magic of just doing stuff and seeing what I could change using these rituals about my life, about myself, about everything. And one of the great things about John Michael Greer, even though he's written over 100 books, he's surprisingly approachable. You can find him online. You can ask questions. And I've only even had to ask questions of him a handful of times. And half the time he answers just keep doing magic and you'll figure it out. <laughs> and, uh, as you said, something you, you might start saying to your students, because it's true. Uh, the structure of uh, magic will teach you magic to a certain extent. And so the more that I practiced uh, Golden Dawn, I'll say Golden Dawn style magic, it wasn't based on any particular order, um, but it was what I picked up from various authors teaching Golden Dawn magic, including John Michael Greer, a bit from Damien Eccles, and starting to use uh, these influences to start to develop my own sense of what magic is, what it can do, and how it can transform myself using this path. Uh, John Michael Greer actually includes a invocation for your holy guardian angel in his book on circles of power. So uh, the way that Golden Dawn was presented to me, uh, the whole HGA had already been smuggled in. <laughs> so it wasn't until I started learning, um, like reading the original books and looking at you know self initiation to Golden Dawn and stuff like that, where I realized like, oh, it's it's not here. That you know you might find some references to true self uh, or higher self, but it's not the same thing as the HGA. So yeah, and and zero mention of 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 there being a, a you know abramelin ritual as part of the Golden oh, yeah or outer order, of course, of course. Um, not that there's anything wrong with doing the Abramelin. <laughs> oh, uh, I, I would got to say first, uh, what was it? I loved your interview with Aaron Leach. I have a really good friend who took Aaron Leach's course on the Abramelin and had a tremendous transformative experience with the appearance of Holy Guardian Angel and everything. Um, so to me, it's closely related to that idea of true will. Um, the idea that there is a purpose to your life. Uh, whether you're aware of it or not. And it's actually encoded into you and it's encoded into the most authentic uh, desires that you have that are not only individual to you, not the result of influences from outside, because everyone's always trying to impose on us expectations, um, you know, archetypes that we're supposed to follow. You're supposed to be this kind of son, this kind of daughter, this kind of brother, sister, this kind of employee, uh, this kind of anything, this kind of magician. It's still in the spiritual world. You still get these false expectations that we get uh, burdened with. Uh, that are there to make other people happy or what other people think will make them happy. And they're not what will truly make ourselves happy. And the more we start to, you know, purify ourselves and get rid of all of these negative influences, the more we start to hone in on our individual will. And once we have a better sense of our individual will, now we need to find a way of expressing it in the world 
in a way that doesn't harm anyone, that benefits us, but not anyone else's expense. Um, there's two reasons for that. First of all, it's a waste of time. Uh, if you enter into conflict with other people when you could avoid it, all that energy spent on conflict, even if you win, uh, could be saved and redirected to doing what you wanted to do in the first place before there was a conflict. Uh, and that's the first reason to do it is just practical, avoid that waste of energy. And then the second reason to do it is that there is a deeper purpose behind all of this. Um, I studied philosophy, I studied uh, Plotinus and Neoplatonist philosophy, and the idea that everything, um, Plotinus actually came up with the scheme of the four worlds that we see in the tree of life, the one, the divine intellect, uh, the world soul, and the material world uh, called uh, the absolute or mental plane, the Bria or astral plane, the uh, Yetzirah or etheric plane, and uh, Asya, material plane. This structure of metaphysics uh, goes back to ancient Greece and the idea that everything leads back to the one. Everything leads back to this point at which we are united in our existence, where there is pure unity. Uh, it's really core to the metaphysics of the Golden Dawn, as I was taught. And so finding a way to express your will in a way that honors that essential unity, where the idea is that we're all different parts of some beautiful, miraculous whole that is too large for us to even conceive of or see. But the more that we believe in it and the more that we start to act as if it exists, the more we start to realize it in the world and the more we can create harmony within our own lives and with other people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Golden Dawn system is, is, is it's got different, it flirts through different uh, schemas and mythological formats, right, to present a variety oh. range of, of, of metaphysics and cosmologies. But I think the underlying one is certainly is certainly this this uh neoplatonic idea for sure um yeah, the with, sense of unity mm -hmm. like not um and of course now we have a better understanding of of the hermetica which is nice and that's always going to keep improving so that's going to offer new new nuances and interpretations for people who want to work within that schema and then there of course is the monistic approach as opposed to the emanationist one which is also mm -hmm. Are you, you know, baked into the system and you can, however you want to go about it, it could be simply just a methodological difference, though, of course, your conception of a thing creates the context in which you behave and yeah. act that they're, which is why the, the, the Akephalos, right, is not the same, is not the bornless ritual, um, and the mm -hmm. bornless ritual is not Libra Samic, and none of those yeah. are felon. And, uh, you might talk as a, as if they produce all the same thing, but mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not convinced they do at all. Really. Right. I think with the Abra Mellon, it's mm -hmm. like, you're really working with an intercessory sort of spirit, like mm -hmm. in the true grimoire, well, in the mm -hmm. like grimoire. Um, but, but this idea, it looks like that just got inflated. You know what I mean? I just think it seems like they inflated the, the Holy guardian angel, um, into this side of the concept self conception and, and by doing so limiting what the higher self was interpreted as, because the higher self, I think had in the golden dawn era, originally a very different idea than people apply to it today. Right. Mm -hmm. I think they saw it more in the way that Rudolf Steiner saw it and Rudolf Steiner saw the higher self as the ego, as the I that's the, yeah. I, the, self, the I, not the me, but the I, the ego. And, mm -hmm. I think if you said if you said that to someone, if you had clarified that distinction for people, like during the, when I was learning stuff in the '90s, they would have gotten very upset. <laughs> totally, yeah. Analysis, 
So it's interesting. Yeah, I, it was interesting for me um, because I was talking to a friend who was going through the final stages of the Abra Malin um, uh, while he was in there. And I saw the transformations, you know, week to week in his personality and the experience that they had um, meeting the angel and all of that. And uh, for my own experience, it was with the Akephalos ritual. I did some work, uh, looked at Crowley, saw Liber Samic and the Bornless ritual and realized that was very much Crowley style, but it was drawn, it drew upon this ancient Akephalos ride. So I'm like, okay, I want to check that guy out, see what's, see what's going on there. And uh, I experienced this incredible transformation uh, through invoking Akephalos where I, I consider Akephalos to be kind of the archetype of the perfected ego. Uh, where it, it is a chalice rather than a spear, rather than, you know, piercing into the world and creating chaos. It actually receives divinity. Um, the, the sense of being headless in the, um, in the way that the head is empty. The head is a cup for divine influence. And the way that I experienced that is astonishing, overwhelming love, um, uh, from just every direction for everything. And it emanates forth in the sense of bliss and contentment. And it's, uh, uh, it's incredibly reassuring in the sense of it, it doesn't deny the amount of pain and agony in the world. Um, but somehow you experience an intense amount of empathy where there's so much pain, there's so much happiness. And yet this, the net result of it is some state of bliss, some state of completion, contentment. And the idea that the world is happy existing, <laughs> that even through all the chaos and the misery in this world, that there's some fundamental goodness about this existence and being able to experience that directly and return to it. It's not something I do constantly because I, I quickly realized that it's not a place you can hang out on, hang out in forever and be useful. Uh, you really have to leave that place to do, uh, to do important work, to do work, continually transforming yourself, continually transforming your world, figure out how to engage in the world. Like even once you know what you're supposed to be doing, Doing so in a way that's actually skillful is like a whole nother thing. <laughs> so like finding your true will isn't necessarily the end of the journey. It's kind of the beginning. It's kind of the first time where you have the potential to be useful now, but now you have to actually go out and figure out how to do it. Uh, and so that's been my journey is having access to this incredible divine bliss, this incredible inspiration, and yet also trying to figure out how can I be useful? How can I actually help people? How can I actually use magic to uh, improve people's lives? Uh, and that's been the whole basis of my uh my career as a magic teacher, just trying to work one-on-one -on -one people to figure out, okay, what are your real problems with yourself? What are your real problems in life? How can we ma use magic to transform you, to manifest what you need to get going, to create results? And uh, we should get into this because I'm kind of bearing the lead. I came into magic as an atheist uh, with a really, uh, coming from a really miserable experience where I had basically eliminated any mundane uh, way that I could see. Uh, out of my situation, out of this really controlling, toxic relationship. And I'd given up all hope of uh, any solution, but there was magic. And I figured, you know, if every every sensible uh, way out of my situation has been exhausted, I might as well try the completely ridiculous. And so I practiced, started practicing magic um, with no expectations, uh, just suspending my disbelief. I knew how to meditate at that point because I'd been meditating for 10 years. So that was tremendous help. I'd studied Tibetan Buddhism. So I wasn't starting from zero, but yeah. being able to engage in magic with a suspension of disbelief and in incredible concentration, I was able to completely transform my life in 90 days after daily magic to where that toxic, toxic relationship ended in such an amicable way that no one could believe it. And at that point, I still wasn't certain if magic was real, but I knew that it worked and I decided to keep doing it. And since then, my life has just been continually changing, uh, continually transforming. And through that process has led me to 
I led people to ask me to teach them magic because that's how I got started. I just wanted to do magic with other people because I love sharing energy. I love being able to share these experiences with others. And some of them started uh, asking me to teach them and share what I've learned. And through that, I started developing a practice and it became my entire career. So, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And, uh, you were working, uh, your, your backgrounds in, in tech, right? Oh yeah, I was doing, uh, what was it? It was at the moment. I was just doing like any entry level job I could because I had no career. Um, I just, at that point, I got the best advice I ever got in terms of career, which was from, uh, Brian Sanderson. He said, find a job with lots of downtime so you can figure out what you really want to be doing. <laughs> uh, or if you want to be a writer, find a job with lots of downtime so you can do lots of writing. And so. Yeah. And that's what I did. I tried writing for a while and then I just started, you know, researching the stuff that I was inter interested in. It was a lot of philosophy. It was a lot of occult stuff. And through that process, I started learning, learning all this stuff and started practicing, practicing every day. And so I started advancing, getting really in phenomenal transformation, transformations in my life through magic in a really, um, quick pace for two reasons. One, I had done all of that. Uh, preliminary work with Buddhism, learning how to concentrate, learning how to visualize, learning all of these different skills and the discipline to do it. Um, but also just because I was learning from really great teachers, like John Michael Greer's uh, path to it was really essential for me. And just by doing these systems of rituals um, and trying to advance my way up, you know, learn the elemental invocations, learn the planetary invocations, learn the zodiacal invocations, uh, working my way up through the system, I started experiencing increasingly profound changes to myself and my life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love Greer. I'm probably, I'm always going to love Greer despite, despite the whole, uh, Golden Dawn seventh edition fiasco on. <laughs> I know you're not a fan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I'm not one of the consultants on that. So I'm not one of the ones who are, are butthurt about, um, being ignored. Um, but his work has been such a huge part of my life since I, uh, I first discovered the occult bookstore in town here. And we have a, legendary one here so i was very lucky it's so legendary even jason lube worked there for a while um really oh that's I, incredible the of meditations on the tarot though i just thought he was some dork who got a job there because he was into like vegan food which a lot of people do you know i didn't know he was a, a serious player at the time and he was involved in the chaos magic scene here in vancouver at, in those days and i wasn't in canada much yeah. of them so we never had any or anything like that, but it's a major bookstore. So I had access to good stuff and all the John Michael Greer stuff uh, that I started reading at a young age was just, uh, was very, was very helpful. Um, mm -hmm. And it, like connect highly with his druidry and the druidic stuff he produces. Yeah. Uh, that was actually really essential for me, even getting a better understanding of the planes that I mentioned earlier, the four worlds of the tree of life. Uh, he talked about uh, planes in a druid book about um, the way that they're overlapping systems, the way that uh, the weather can be one system of a piece of land, it's weather, and then it's water cycle, and then the, the fauna on it. And all of these things are independent systems, but they're all there simultaneously to establish whatever the, the ecology is. And the planes essentially work the same way for us. And I talked about them in terms of the mental plane being responsible for the meanings of things, also our attention and our, um, our, our habits that get formed through the structures of attention that we form. And then the, uh, the, uh, the astral plane being really responsible for identification and the archetypes that kind of influence us, uh, both astrologically and in terms of, you know, the archetype of being a magician, the archetype of being a son, the archetype of being any role in society. 
and then the etheric plane and then the emotions and the emotional factors that come into something. And then the, of course, the material plane and the actions we actually take as a result of all these other influences. And so the way that I've been able to structure reality um, as a result of not just reading about magic and understanding it philosophically, but directly interacting with these levels, being able to do etheric magic, being able to do astral magic and start to understand how that changes my emotions, how that changes my identity uh, and start to I think of magic as applied philosophy <laughs> as a way to take all of these abstract concepts and then actually use them to get results. Yeah. Don't tell Justin Sledge that, eh? <laughs> I would love it if he applied some philosophy. That would be, that would be fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to test out your logic. Just <laughs> right back. I got to get my quartz. <laughs> exactly exactly well i mean i think mm -hmm. here's your thesis yes or no let's douse it <laughs> oh yeah i would love for more research to begun uh be done regarding magic it was if it wasn't for the research around meditation i probably wouldn't have gotten into spirituality at all i was really agnostic for a long time and then looking at the profound changes of meditation. I'm like, I should do this. And after doing it for 10 years, I started ex experiencing things that are in none of the literature because they research meditators for like a couple of years. They do a little bit of research on the people who are like fully enlightened to see how they look um, under scans. But nobody really looks at the way that it can completely transform your relationship with yourself. And so by doing that, I realized like, oh, there's real stuff here that people do not know about. What else is real? And uh, that really inspired me to go back to magic, to go back to these other things that I dabbled with and uh, to try to get results. And the same thing actually happened to Damien Eccles. Was one of the reasons I really connected with him is that he was studying meditation and getting some results of it, but also getting frustrated by it like I was. And then he decided to use those skills to go back to magic. And that started to transform everything for him. So, Yeah. Yeah. The, the, my cult did a good job convincing people meditation worked right uh the transcendental meditation people and and you know my godfather mm -hmm. funder of those here in vancouver oh, um mm -hmm. did a lot of those experiments they did and and uh continues to fund that sort of stuff today where they you know do all they did all this scientific testing to show the uh, results of meditation and it worked it became the the global phenomenon that we all know tm to be um yeah mm -hmm. Or, of course, meditation and yoga in general in a massive way, in a massive way, to the extent that most of my friends in Vancouver who are really into yoga mm -hmm. don't understand how I'm into yoga. <laughs> yoga, they realize that I'm, that I do yoga. Because mm -hmm. believe, because it's so pop, it got so popular that people isolated it as one single thing. And, you know, they're, which is, they're stretching, you know, and sun salutations are great, um, especially mm -hmm. if you have the, you know, some nice floor space to do them on. Um, and, you know, Hatha yoga is great, but there's this whole meditative side to it. it. People um, sort of, it, it got so popular, they lost the meditative and contemplative side of, of a lot of yogic traditions. And now that's coming back these days, of course, but for the longest time, it was just, it was just one thing. And the proliferation of, of meditation yoga has just been such a phenomenal thing. I think, I think it, it, I don't know if we could have this sort of popular movement within magic if the yoga and the meditation hadn't led the way. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think I think it's a, it's definitely expanding. I mean, it's been so easy for me to grow uh, a Facebook group and on social media, a lot of people, more people are becoming interested in spirituality these days. And people are finally remembering that the West has its own spiritual tradition. We don't have to just go overseas repeatedly and learn from other people's traditions. Uh, so it's amazing with uh, hermeticism and magic. And I think the uh, the LBRP is really leading the, the way. It's like a daily ritual that you can use to start transforming your life um, has been a really big draw for a lot of people. And it's great that I can just find people that I've never met before. And we can do the LBRP together and share energy and share magic and have an experience. And that's uh, something that really builds with golden dawn magic that you don't necessarily get with other communities i mean they may be doing manifestation practices or other kinds of practices but they're mostly solo affairs um the fact that um golden dawn magic is meant for self-development and it's meant for uh what daily use uh really helps to build um to build a community around it and to be an activity that people can magnetize around so how how did you feel about um aaron leach on my podcast commenting that golden dawn people from different groups shouldn't do ritual together oh i mean like, yeah that's it, it's a take um you saw mm -hmm. action when i said what about ritual work it was almost like a oh no 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 yeah uh, yeah oh someone the way things or something like that and of course i was i grew up i was raised and trained in that mentality of course mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the same ethos but i questioned that ethos all along and i clearly have come to different conclusions than many others have about it mm -hmm. yeah i think there's a really strong draw um when it comes to magic for maintaining the integrity of a certain system and that's really popular especially in the grimoire tradition which Aaron Lace is very much involved in um but i, I feel there needs to be some amount of uh flexibility adaptability um for traditions to survive and importantly to become more popular and not less over time uh and i think the the changes that happen mentally and also to the potentially the egregores and the traditions of the different orders that are coming together when two people from different orders practice magic is ultimately positive it may be disruptive especially in the short term where people from different orders have different ways of doing things and then they do magic together oh you do it that way that's weird. Uh, <laughs> and it takes a minute for people to get along and to find, uh, find a way to get in sync. But for um, solo practitioners, that adaptability is mandatory. Like everyone's going to develop tons of idiosyncrat uh, idiosyncrasies in their uh, solo practice. And those kind of have to be sacrificed to some extent or made negotiable in order for you to come together to do magic with anyone ever. Uh, and so there, that, that degree of negotiation is sort of just taken for granted among solo practitioners. But I think it's really valuable if you can find people from different orders with that degree of flexibility to start to express, um, uh, was it kind of a come together and find a new understanding of magic that doesn't exist in either order, but exists between them, exists when they come together. I think that really starts to get more perspectives on, on the magic. And that's what I find most interesting. And this is why uh, my group is not just focused on golden dawn magic is focused on every kind of magic that gets results <laughs> uh, because i'm really interested in trying to figure out what the heck is going on uh why is it that we can do all these practices to exercise the imagination to reliably get transformations in ourselves and transformations in our world and uh, one of the th conclusions that i came to is that so much of the world is essentially magic and we just don't call it that 
Uh, I talk a lot about nations, laws, and money. None of these things are made out of matter. They're made by decree. They're made out of human imagination and agreement. And it's just the fact that we agree to them that makes these ideas real, whereas other ideas are not real. And most people think that the ideas that are real, you have to accept and you have to obey and you have no choice over them. But when you study magic, you're like, no, I have power of my own imagination. I can start to create a reality. I can start to create a new way of existence and project that in the world surrounding me. And suddenly the world plays along. Nature plays along. Reality itself seems to play along and real things start to happen. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's certainly my experience. And you know, one of the, there's been some comments in the, over the, well, there's been comments about how on the podcast, uh, the guys just talk about books, but not ex their experiences and only, and the women talk about their experience. Well, not uh, the books. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't like when I said, well, that's just a, a literacy issue. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It wouldn't be magical though here's if I didn't say some inappropriate joke. There you go, folks. There's a joke about <laughs> But it's not possible. We know that because we don't even know what gender is anymore. And so, you know, let's just uh just just keep reading as uh homunculus blobs of uh, energy, if that's what we want to call ourselves. Um I'm fine with that. So I, I like the I like the creativity. I like that people can define themselves into whatever they want to be. And it's like, I'm this now. Okay. Like <laughs> It's uh, it's it's freedom. Like people can be whatever they want to be. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to play along, but it means that you can decide what you want for yourself. So, yeah, the difference I think is is the difference between the Piscean and the Aquarian age. And we got to remember, mm -hmm. start this off with mm -hmm. the statement that the Pisces and the Pisceans don't get Aquarians at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's a classic case of eisegesis. They're looking mm -hmm. at the Aquarians who care about humanity and care about uh, the quality of ideas and thought. Mm -hmm. And they're like, look, they're just like us. And the Aquarians are like, you're wrong. And, yeah. and so there's this authoritarian quality coming in with the Aquarian age that wasn't so much there in the Piscean, right? So in the 90s, mm -hmm definitely st sort of still in the age of Pisces. We're in a tra hundred year transitional period. So it's all up in the air and yeah. court mm -hmm. right now. But, you know, you could say you were whatever you wanted. You just couldn't tell yeah. other people. Yes. Mm -hmm. They had to, what they could think or feel or believe. Mm -hmm. Right. You could be like, I'm a, I'm a fairy kid. I'm a fairy child. And, you know, that was kind of how I thought of myself growing up in as a little fairy Wiccan in high school, you know, like until I, you know, joined the golden dawn at the old age of 15 but that and that 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 was a big shift because all of a sudden i was hanging out around with hanging out around adults who for whom this was the most serious thing that in the world and they had dedicated their lives to it and given up yeah. you know relationships family job whatever they they a lot of, they were all in on building the best and biggest temple that they you know could build for the glory of god and that was a that was a massive shift from my fairy wiccan days but you know you could be like oh yeah i'm on this or that and i could wear a green velvet cloak to school and no one gave a shit because mm -hmm. i didn't tell anyone else what they had to do or say or think but of course so moving from that piscean world you can still be whatever you want but now mm -hmm. it's like this is what i am and you're going to jail if you don't agree <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely more aggressive. Um, the uh, uh, and I'm an Aquarius, so I know what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, with uh the the shift, uh the great conjunction in Aquarius um that happened recently that for uh what happened coincided with the uh, the rise of uh what was it? Um the lockdowns and everything else. Um, it really shows that astrology is not always subtle, uh, that we're definitely entering into a new stage uh, and that uh, the, the influences of the Aquarian age are going to be around a handful of individuals that have the microphone that can tell everyone else what to think and do. Uh, and the rest of us figuring out, how do we get that microphone? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's what I really appreciate about magic is that you don't have to sit or sit and wait around. You can build your own microphone you can start to project yourself in the way that you want the world to be um and yeah i mean that's essentially what i've done by creating a magic community that reflects my values and what i see as valuable in magic and uh the kinds of people that i want coming together and the kinds of stuff i want uh, us doing together and everyone has that ability like it's not it's not that hard to build a community if you know what your values are and what kind of people you want to hang out with and what you want to be doing together um, but the amount of internal work to understand yourself well enough and to trust yourself enough to actually put yourself out there and be vulnerable is tremendous. And that's something that I found so essential with magic uh, that seems uh, impossible for most people who don't practice magic. Yeah. Uh, so I want to, so I was thinking like, you know, this would be a great podcast to, to focus more on experiences and, and uh, up who are like, the guys don't talk about experiences. We can talk about experiences all day, you know, and I can oh. make it's about why men might tend to talk less about experiences as well. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I, tell me if the, what you think of this theory before we sure. full bore into like sharing some laws and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we have, it's not like we don't have them to share, but here was a theory I had when I saw those comments, mm-hmm. you know, the way men and women interview different as magicians or whatever. Yeah. Um, Obviously, it's ridiculous. It's not that <laughs> only one group reads, but yeah. I think men are more likely to also be Freemasons, um, a lot mm-hmm. of them, and yeah. or in similar groups that have strict vows or and and so men are oh, yeah. of secrecy around these things for those reasons. Also, there's I think a bit more judgment on men who are involved in these things than women. Uh, honestly, mm-hmm. I think a guy in the occult um it's it's seen as a very big deal um mm. like you'll be judged professionally in your family personally and all that stuff oh yeah or girl who's into you know witchcraft or demons mm. it's like that's cute <laughs> yeah it's an aesthetic if you're if you're a woman it's a it's a lifestyle for a man yeah what I, do you think i'm off base on on thinking in those terms Oh, I mean, it's generalization, so it's not going to apply to everybody. But I think that, uh, um, yeah, I, I, what I find uh, interesting about magic is that each of us comes to it with our own set of uh, what was it experiences and uh, priorities. Uh, I talked to Angela Puka about this. She's interviewed lots of guys that are very much about the experience, that are very much about the feeling. They have really hard time struggling with the structure. And also women like her, like Angela is one of them, that have an incredible uh, intellectual comprehension of the structure of all these different traditions. And that's that's her forte. So there are definitely like men and women that are completely flipped, that are on the on the opposite side. So I think it's just like two different ways of approaching magic. Either it's experience first or it's theory first, you know, practice first or, uh, or theory first. And I think that... Um, what was it? I, in particular, tend to be one more of the 
uh, theory first kind of person. Like I need to, I need to know what I'm stepping into. I'm not the kind of person to just like cannonball into another realm or set of consciousness and figure my way out from there. Uh, that sounds terrifying, but <laughs> I've done that before. <laughs> first, you know, when I, when I just, when I first tried the LRP, I, I was like, Oh, these are angels. Okay. Mm-hmm. These are Judeo Christian angels and names of God. And I yeah. thought absolute nonsense and disgusting how dare these you know christians like write things down in terms that as if they have any value or reality to them whatsoever you know i thought i was just really horrified at what i was reading in craig's modern magic absolutely yeah no it's it's turned the rituals and started practicing them them every day right cannonballing into the experience because i guess what i wasn't having the experience I was expecting and promised mm-hmm. by my my books on Celtic Druidry and Fairy Wicca and that sort of stuff. Um, I yeah. certainly wasn't having the kind of experiences that I was able to have through meditation and yoga and, and uh, you know inner inner deep inner work, um, as you might call it, mm-hmm. right? So I wasn't having those experiences. And then as soon as I started doing those the you know Golden Dawn rituals, uh, I mm-hmm. felt tremendous shifts around me and I felt energy coursing through me and just you know it was it came alive all around me all over my body and all over my space and within weeks everyone was treating me very differently um very very much better it was weird there was strange it was it was it was absolutely incredible the shifts that occurred in my life over that that initial period those first few years of of practice um it's just it was it was unbelievable yeah, it's almost like yeah. I, you know, I was young, so I was also growing up. So I guess the shifts might have been a bit more dramatic as well, because when you're growing up and you you can change more, more dramatically, uh, you can you know you know just change the way you dress and speak, and all of a sudden you're in a different you know niche niche of friends and uh, and that sort of thing. But but no, it was just it was just uh, yeah, it was and. Uh, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would have the same aversion to angels. I, I know that a lot of people who get into golden on magic uh, do at the start um, because I'd left, I'd separated from the, my Christian upbringing. My dad died at a very young age when I was six years old and the, the failure of the Christian community to really support us uh, uh, and the fallout of that uh, really soured my uh, opinion of the church. And so I became mostly agnostic um from that young age moving forward and then eventually just pure on full-on atheist when i read enough philosophy to not be able to tell the difference because between a god who is um uh no thing and a god who is nothing um <laughs> i realized that's that's largely semantic difference at least from my perspective at the time and just declared myself atheist and uh been it was like that for you know uh over five years before i even started dipping my toe into magic when i came into magic it was through the sphere of protection it was through druidry um and it was uh through those experiences that i got uh in contact with hikate who i didn't even know who she was when she showed up like in a terror reading that my sister was doing um and like who is this this entity coming here because sometimes we'd see my father we'd see other spirits um, but then there was a deity. We'd never seen a deity, uh, was it, in any of her tarot readings. We'd never had any experience like that before. And apparently she had taken an interest in me. And that got me off um, exploring a relationship with her. And that actually led me to Damien Eccles and Angel Magic. And she's like, this is what you need to be doing. 
Um, and astonishingly, it was, <laughs> it was it. Um, I had to overcome all of this resistance that I had to Christianity to start invoking angels in the name of God. But as soon as I did that, it was absolutely transformative. And it was so affirming to realize that, um, what had been taught growing up wasn't entirely baseless, that there was actually, um, there was actually power in these entities and these names and that there was a way to access them directly where I didn't need to trust an, ex, an external authority. There's another reason that I'm really well suited to solo practice is I just, I don't really trust authorities. I like to question them and if they don't know philosophy. That's really bad. Um, uh, so I, I want to be able to explore on my own terms and figure out, you know, what works and what's real for myself and being able to do that and challenge my own presumptions with golden on magic really led me to the affirmation of like, Oh, these, this is real. And I don't have to take anyone's word for it. I can just practice it myself and invoke these angels and realize, Oh, they're completely changing my life in so many ways inside and out. Yeah. I'm, I'm, and for those, I'm sorry for those listening. Some of you don't want to hear about experiences. That's what we're going to probably talk a lot about. Oh, but- totally on this like yeah that was the the shocking thing like the idea that i could call and and imagine these archangels and that Mm -hmm. there was some sort of there felt like an actual foreign presence around me and like at least i was tapping into something i didn't think that like they were evoked i was i was the 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 book back then in my day was constant the big evocation book that uh, all the kids had was constantinos's uh, summoning spirits so i get Sort of like the that was the the uh, the brand X um, Ashton Shasan of those days. Um, mm-hmm. I just say that because it was a thin, flippy little book with uh, you know pictures and that sort of thing. It wasn't the the magnum opus status of of uh, of uh, Frater Ashton Shasan's gateways through light and shadow or stone and circle, whichever the big one is. Stone and circle, light and shadow, light and shadow. Right. You know, if you're familiar with his work. Yeah. So, you know, there's much more monumental works that we have from magicians these days. But back then we still had these these books about, you know, the spirit will actually show up and here's a picture of what it looks like. And you're like, well, what will I experience? Well, it doesn't tell you just as the spirit will show up and look like (laughs) still have this today with magicians, uh, you know, who write like that, like John R. King. Right. They just. Yeah. And it's so rare to get actual visual apparitions. I had that. It was the funniest thing. I had that once, waking up in the middle of the night, towering over my bed, taller than the ceiling, were these two, like, gray shadows. And I thought, I hope you guys are good, because otherwise I am screwed. <laughs> like, I could just feel the power en- en- emanating off of these these individuals. And turned turned out to be angels. Turned out to be angels I'd never never met or heard of before. They had a ritual for me, doing that ritual um, led me to uh, a communication with God that I found really profound. Um, but it was that that is so so rare for anything to appear visual, and even when it does appear, it's like the form of a person rather than a clearly defined thing um, that you, would be the same that you see with your visual eyes. And most of the time, you end up with uh, was it stuff in your mind's eye? But I find that to be incredibly significant. I think that a lot of psychic development works through making your mind's eye more receptive so you can start to receive things. This is how, uh, what was it? Remote viewing is based and remote viewing is extremely uh, results uh, orientated. Uh, so there can be um, really profound experiences, both vertical and also personal uh, that you have when you allow your mind's eye to be shaped by uh, what's coming up. Um, but you need to start to develop it first, which is why I think 
actively visualizing through magic and deciding deciding what angels are going to look like uh, in your mind's eye as you do this uh, can be a gateway to developing more receptive quality of imagination where you start to receive visions, where you start to receive information. And when you start doing that, you get stuff that you couldn't get otherwise. You start to uh, talk to entities and get names that you look up in Google a moment later and go, whoa, that's real? Like this was the real thing that was talking to me? Um, or you get uh, you know, practical advice that leads to tremendous success. Or you get, um, you know, prophecy, uh, was it, uh, premonitions, uh, predictions of th- stuff that's going to happen. And, uh, one of my, one of the predictions I got working with spirits was accurate six months to the day in advance because I asked for when it would, when it would happen. And it was given an astrological election rather than an actual, um, <laughs> a specific date, which I found really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But it, to the day of that astrological election, the day passed and I thought nothing had happened, but the thing I did to set things in motion directly led to, um, ended up becoming, uh, what was, what I would, what I had asked about. So yeah, there can be so many tremendous experiences when you relax your mind, when you allow, and I call it the psychic handshake, um, you never realize this, but when you shake hands with someone, half of your experience is the shape of your own hand. And I feel the same is true for most of our experiences in the mind's eye. Half of what we're experiencing is just ourselves. It's just our own imagination. But the other half of that often is an entity that's trying to use our imagination to communicate with, with us, to use the archetypes and ideas we have available to communicate its intent, its will. That's why it's so important, those initial practices like meditating on a point, right? And, and- yeah teach you to still and calm your mind. Even if you, if you do a mantra, a basic mantra meditation, it's like mm-hmm. the quieting of those waters and, and you learn what are your thoughts and what aren't your thoughts, right? What's, totally. what's what you think, because we all know, especially if you're in a creative person, we all know the difference between struggling to find the creative juices or of like mm-hmm. or a song or an image or whatever mm-hmm. it is for creating and then we all know that as it throughout that process, then at some point something like enters us. Yes. You know, next thing you know, it's 5 a.m. and you've banged out a thousand words an hour, right? Yeah. Like how, and then you reread it the next day wondering, uh oh, it's it, in the yellow morning. Will this be stanzas of gib- gibberish? Like <laughs> said, or, oh my God, this is some of the best writing I've ever done. I, I have, I, I don't have those experiences all the time, but the rest of my writing and creative work is for those experiences. Last year, I was struggling with, you know, this Enochian text I was writing all of a sudden after, you know, a lot of struggle, 35,000 words shot out. And, you know, the other day, again, I had another big explosion of, of writing and, you know, but sometimes it's like, you know, even if I'm writing every day or working on little bits of writing here and there, those things don't happen all the time. And it doesn't, I don't believe that it's just the accumulation or me sorting through my own thoughts. I do believe it's like hooking into an energy or a, a vibe that, or a spirit that just, that, that clarifies and communicates those things in a certain way. And is that a part of myself or not? Who knows? I like to think of it. I, I big, I'm a big believer that some of the older terms in their vagueness are, are actually more accurate than some of the new terms in their specificity. You know what I mean? Yeah, like totally. spirits, yeah. such, a term, such a great term. Uh, it it mm-hmm. connects language wise, even with the ins- inspiration, the inspiritu, mm-hmm. the, uh, the idea that the, there's spirit and spirits, mm-hmm. but also the inspiration of us with the spirit world. 
Whereas when you get into the more technical, a lot of people like to say entity, right? But <laughs> it's, it's almost like the child of a dualistic worldview, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, what was it? I actually think in terms of wills rather than identities, because I, I feel like a lot of the powers we're working with will wear an identity the same way you can wear a hat. Like <laughs> they can they can put it on and they can perform within that within that scheme, but it's not them. It's not the most essential part of who they are because we're so attached to our identities and we think of it, our identity as the most essential part of who we are. And the way I've been discovered, like at least what I've discovered through magic, the idea that there is this will that is driving me to become whoever I need to be to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And what I'm, the personality I have is as much a part of me as the suit that I'm wearing. It can be taken off. It can be transformed. It can become something else as it needs to in order to accomplish something. And I feel like that's uh, what I get a lot of times when working with entities, especially more powerful ones, is that they will assume the shapes that will help me accomplish whatever I need to accomplish. But it doesn't mean that they are that. It means that that's what they have chosen in order to work with me. Yes. <laughs> Struggling here with the ontological question or going to just sweep it under the rug? <laughs> oh, what do you, what's the ontological question for you? Well, yeah, the, the reality of, of these, these things. Mm -hmm. Oh, address the reality of these things without addressing the reality of reality. Right. Oh. For me, yes. that's, fundamental problem with uh you know what's that brilliant douchebag's name <laughs> not a gambin not giorgio gambin the theses against occultists oh yeah adorno yeah yeah yeah. Adorno. um i mean like honestly at first year second year in grad school we all read that in seminary like that was that of course we had that we had to understand these and uh yeah it was it was tough like i i find his adorno's arguments very compelling despite their weaknesses really? yeah like well i don't know i don't at all beauty to them and i agree with yeah mm -hmm. i think i think when justin sledge when dr sledge says that he doesn't understand why more people mm -hmm. don't um don't like them or agree what he means by is agree with them, whether we like them or not. I really am. I'm very sympathetic. I think that I, I, I really get where he's coming from. I really do. Like if you were approaching those texts, mm -hmm. it's hard. It was very hard for me to deal with those texts throughout seminary. I was very, mm -hmm. I struggled with them very much. Um, and it, you know, I, it, it affected my change out of biblical study, Hebrew, uh, specializing in Hebrew Bible and, mm -hmm. and languages, all the way into ethics and, and monolithic philosophy. Like I shift, a massive shift. I had a breakup with that professor who was very angry about it and tried to get me expelled over it. Some people are really butthurt when you decide to leave their, their mentorship uh, along with mm -hmm. someone else and such a radically different, you know, a biblical scholar is mm -hmm. happy to see you, you know, jumping into post-structuralist mm -hmm. thought and ethics so much um or at least yeah. mine unfortunately it's a real shame because he was he's such a he was such a great teacher and, and guy but you know yeah. it happens it happens so i struggle I, yeah. but yet i do feel that 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 like well i mean i think dr puka nailed the critiques perfectly like that's what's so great about those two of them having that conversation like thank god like it's just out there it's recorded you can check it out you know yeah. i would see her synopsize 
what she considers the main arguments against the movie. I'd also love to see them to finish it. I, I watched it all in two goes, and it's it's brutal. It's brutal, of course. Yeah. Um, if you take oh. you take all the thoughts seriously on both sides, I I do. It's just that um, the I mean, this is like my approach to philosophy. I feel like there's a lot of arguments uh, that kind of undermine Adorno. Um, so that I don't really, I don't really worry about him. I mean, a lot of his arguments to me come down to, well, it doesn't do anything for Marxism. I'm like, it's not supposed to. <laughs> um, so I'm just not as worried, but that's also my reaction come having come to occultism as an atheist who studied the philosophy of science and really struggling with the ontological status of these entities for a while before I realized that it's not that these entities are, are so uh, much realer than people uh, think they are. Actually they are. Um, it's that the, uh, what was it? They are in the experience, uh, the ephemeralness uh, of magic where you can have real experiences, where you can have real transformations and still ask yourself, was that real? Was that all in my head? Am I just that powerful? Like what is, what is really going on, going on in this realm? Um, that ephemeralness isn't escapable. We're not going to have the kind of concrete certainty and magic that we have in science. The disturbing reality is that science is a lot more ephemeral than anyone actually wants to believe it is. Um, and this is something that uh, Donald Hoffman has gonna, done a lot to really uh, argue uh, definitively in my mind uh, with his book, The Case Against Reality. Um, he was an evolutionary uh, scientist who uh, realized that if you're taking the theory of evolution seriously, then you have to consider that human beings' conception of reality is an evolved product that we have actually evolved the way that we see the world, not necessarily to reflect the way the world actually is, but only in such a way as to perpetuate our own survival and our own, uh, our own success. And that radically uh, changed my view of magic where it's like, okay, maybe we're just evolving into a new space, a new terrain. And it's so chaotic because we haven't been doing it for um, that long, at least not as many of us have been doing it for that long. And we're starting to try to grasp what can we do in this new space of manipulating reality through, um, you know, talking to these entities, working with these states of consciousness uh, and, and all of that. And uh, what's the, the, the capsule version of Donald Hoffman's argument is that if verticality, that is the quality of things who exist outside the mind as they exist in the mind, if that has a non-zero calorie cost, then we didn't evolve the habit. Uh, because there are so many other things that are worth our survival that we would have evolved to develop first, rather than simply, you know, being able to see the world the way it actually is. That doesn't necessarily have any value from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, and the really mind-blowing thing that he doesn't go into, uh, that, I, that I took away from reading his book, is that the, the ontological structure of objective reality is... Uh, very different than most people conceive. It's not like a reflection. It's not a correspondence. It's not like I have a model of reality and then reality matches that. It's the idea of this negative, the idea that objective reality is negative, that it's a set of limits, that it's a set of things that we have to pass. Like we can't, certainly things we can't do, um, but it's an open space in which we project positives in order to uh, have certain things, accomplish certain goals, have certain experiences. And then as long as our projections don't get negated by anything in the objective objective world, then we break through, then stuff happens. And that's what I continually experience with magic. And the astonishing thing is this actually matches the definition of science by Karl Popper, uh, which revolves around falsification and the idea that nothing is actually confirmed, uh, but things simply are able to survive 
falsification to a greater and greater extent. And that it's not actually that uh, the positive idea of ideas of science are part of a paradigm that gets shuffled in and out uh, every scientific revolution, rather than being this eternal, unchangeable truth. And that's a false vision that we've gotten from a lot of materialists, is that science presents this eternal, unchangeable truth. And uh, when you actually get into the philosophy of science, you're like, oh, that's not it at all. Um, and so reality just becomes a lot weirder. And so the weirdness of material reality that I've discovered through philosophy helped me to reconcile with the weirdness of magic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially these days, it's hard to talk about this without discussing the elephant in the room, which is the replication issue. That's oh, crisis. Yes, it's a perfect example. Yeah. I love how aware people are of getting, uh, getting aware of that um, mm -hmm. and how pissed off they are about it as well. It's, it's so much fun. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's such a perfect example in real time of what a scientific revolution looks like because you have all this stuff coming to life like, oh, these numbers are bullshit. Like, <laughs> people cooked these up. We thought this was good science. It turns out to not be good science. And so some things change. And then you have an established elite that built the careers off of, uh, off of um, experiments that cannot be replicated. And those aren't getting challenged. And those people are not being kicked out, which means that those people have to age and die off before actual better science really gains a foothold in the establishment. And this is the problem with any kind of philosophical change. I mean, you look at the gap between, um, what was it, John Locke and modern democracy. You look, you read John Locke now and you're like, this is what everybody in the West already believes. Like, why did this, why was this considered revolutionary? It's because nobody was thinking that way back then. And it took, yeah, all that time for those ideas to percolate and become widely accepted. You have the same lag time when it comes to scientific revolutions where you realize something and it takes generations for people to actually accept it because it's so big um, that it's it's kind of, un, uh, what was it? It's an emotionally incon incontestable. You can't really, um, yeah, it's hard to accept. Yeah, not only is it hard to you know, reconcile yourself to the experiencing of less than 5% of reality. But the idea that there can be realities beyond our own is, is so, um, problematic for theory. Totally. Yeah. yeah. That's why you see it represented in, in experiments, right. And, and mm -hmm. in our practices, whether it's even scientific or magical, because yeah. they have these, these quirky areas in which things don't go exactly the way you'd expect, right? Which you could mm -hmm. science when it doesn't work and magic when it works in a way, right? Exactly. Yeah. This is works. You're, it's, it's kind of amazing when it, uh, when it, you know, when it, when it really works or when you, when you, when you target it correctly or, yeah. or at it, I suppose. But like you see, you'll see, they seem, it seems like miracles are happening. It seems like miracles are happening. Yes really doing it a lot it sort of seems like your life is just kind of a uh, uh, blessed right like, <laughs> yes yeah if i told my friends back in those days I, it's like oh, we're gonna go here and we're going to you know you know get in for free and go backstage and meet all the people they didn't question me anymore they just knew <laughs> and sometimes they wouldn't come because they're like you know I know I have such a bad mentality. It's, if I come, it might not, it, it might not work out well. It's like, thanks for letting me know. You are correct about that. Your, your attitude sucks. Um, 
can still come anyways because we're gonna have a great time. No, no, I shouldn't come. I'll I'll ruin it. Okay, whatever. You probably actually have a a booty call or something. That's probably why you're not coming. We'll just we'll just go off and things you know things flow in that magical kind of way. And you know that's sort of how I lived a lot of my life. Honestly, is 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 like letting it living in that flow and just sort of taking the advice from the spirits around me and making radical decisions based on it. And you know it didn't always work out. That's for sure, but. I think it led to a more interesting life than than had I behaved in a purely, you know, logical fashion. Right. I was told. I mean, life's totally. hard to plan anyway, no matter what. Yeah. Um, but certainly, I think look back on decisions where I made the magical choice versus the logical, big or so societal choice. Yeah. It's shocking how many times, right? Like the magical one did seem insane, but had mm-hmm. I the, the other one, I would have been really screwed. So that's that's always fascinating to me is is how many times magic has saved me from a very obvious, safe, sane pathway that would have led to utter destruction. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's uh, was it. A lot of people find magic at their lowest point, like I did. But just that, if there's no logical, safe way to respond to your situation, you might as well try the the unsafe. Uh, um, unsafe way that's not as as well well understood, and uh, that's been the case for me. It's like so many times I've stepped into something that I visualized, something that I wrote down a, p- a petition, or something that I decided to manifest, and all of a sudden I'm there, I'm living it. Uh, and the the gap between imagination and reality becomes uh, like this thin veil that you can actually traverse when you know the passwords, when you get the the uh, permission from the spirits to walk over, when you know the right magic. And it's like this backstage pass where your imagination becomes a place that materializes that you can step into and other people agree to. Uh, and yeah, you just get to live in, live in the world that you have created through magic. And this is where I try to get all my clients to is a space where they can have a job that they love, a living situation that they love, um, you know, a partnership and uh, family relationships that they love. And that's your entire world. It's like what you do for a living, where you live and like a handful of people. And if you can make that, uh, heavenly, then you're in heaven. Like you don't need to do anything more than that. And there's, there's so much that you can, um, there's so much doubt around magic that just evaporates when you realize like, Oh, none of my life would look like this if I didn't decide that it would look like this and make it look like this through magic. <laughs> uh, and I've had, yeah, that experience so many times. And you know, it's funny when you're just thinking of Freud, right? Uh, mm-hmm. in sex, work in sex. Mm-hmm. I like one of my professors takes that you should, it should, that to rephrase it, she, Dr. McFaig would say work and love. She liked that better. And I like that better, but I think Freud actually meant work and sex. He Either meant, he way, meant <laughs> what is more under attack today than those two things? Oh, of course. Yeah. We're hell bent on causing like sort of pathological mm-hmm. fracture in the in the in this in the selfhood of humanity it seems like and i think that's a big factor in what's um appealing to people about magic these days is when you have external forces applying pressure that is almost unbearable and i think for a lot of people it is unbearable i mean just look at the numbers right like yeah. older right you know we're like you know like mm. as elder elder millennial or gen x for me um but the younger people like the amount of 30 year olds out there that have never even like had a kiss yet and like, and have no hopes of ever having any kind of career or job 
where they're ever even going to be able to pay rent. And that's a lot yeah. of, that's a lot of people, right? A lot of our homeless in Vancouver here have full-time jobs, but who cares mm-hmm. two grand a month when rent's three, you know, you're, you're, you're in a tent and a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. I think that's, uh, it's funny that when you look at the problem of, of our modern world, like, you know, call it, you know, mm-hmm. Eating relations, uh, yeah, like mm-hmm. coupling, like this, this is not happening. Good jobs yeah. are not, happening. good careers are not happening. St- there's no stability in any of those arenas, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and society is encouraging people to do porn more than to have kids. Yeah, well, it's um, so that's a, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's like, in my opinion, is perfect for magic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that. Uh, what was it? It's, it's this weird thing. We talked about this um, before about uh, Saturn as the alchemist, like this transition between the signs of Capricorn and Aquarius and the Zodiac and how much um, uh, symbolic and mythic meaning uh, and deep meaning are in those. And the idea that Capricorn, Saturn helps you to build these great imp- empires, but the very same things that allow the empire to expand and to take control and to dominate over time, because they don't change, will cause its decay, its disruption, and cause a handful of firebrands in Aquarius to start changing everything, to take power into their own hands, because there's such an intense power vacuum. Because the structures that are supposed to establish power haven't worked for decades. <laughs> and, you know, so many people are becoming increasingly aware of it. And uh, that uh, that leads to this incredible transition. I think uh, that's where we're heading to in this Aquarian age is that other side of the alchemy where people are starting to claim their own personal power um, and realizing that that's happening regardless, like how many social media companies are controlled essentially by one person. Um, And so we only have like a handful of single individuals that are not elected that are basically controlling everything. We need to start harnessing individual power and the, the traditional way for people who don't have, um, you don't have, you know, material benefits or conventional forms of power to gain power is through magic. But if you can learn enough magic to start transforming your own life, um, then that completely reframes uh, the way the world is. Because before you thought it was a prison, it was there to torture you. And you realize, no, it's just meant to motivate you to get off your ass and to start uh, trying to transform yourself and transform your world and claim your power and uh, do so in a way that will actually create results and actually make you happy. And that's one thing that, uh, you know, ceremonial magic has done for me and everybody I know that's taking it seriously. Yes. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I, that's, that's, I mean, you know, when, when, uh, when I look back on how many people joined the golden dawn after me, well, first of all, mm-hmm. if I could go back in time, I'd give my advice to anyone out there who's thinking about having friends or family and I wouldn't let them that happen. If oh. you, mm-hmm. If you're in a temple or a magical group, don't let your fam- friends or family in. That would be my advice. But the, you know, I didn't ha- didn't have that advice in those days. And and who am I to stop people from doing something that's turned my life around? Right? Like seriously, yeah. like how arrogant would you have to be to be like to pull that ladder up behind you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, plenty of people do it, <laughs> but uh, it's not uh, it's not nice. And also, I feel it's, it's so much better when you share it because when you share power. It's fantastic because people want to um, want you to succeed. You have other people there that are actually happy for your success. Uh, whereas if you're always trying to compete and screw other people over, then you're always like looking out uh, behind your back. So the more you can, uh, this is what I find continuously with building a magic community, the more that you can do to empower other people by 
uh, giving your advice by um, sharing what worked for you and creating a space where anybody can share what's uh, worked for them. And I have, you know, we have several published authors in the, in the group now, BJ Swain, Marco Visconti, uh, Alison Chikowski, and they're, they're help for people asking questions about magic who are in, getting into it to, to, uh, for the first time is so invaluable. And the more that we can share knowledge and help each other and empower each other, the more that we just, um, yeah, we want to support each other more. So it's a uh, yeah, it's really great. Those people are in your group. Otherwise I'd have no one to argue with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's what I love too, is that I love spirited debate. I love people having genuine disagreements uh, and being able to talk about them in a respectful manner. And I just created a space where that can happen. It makes me so happy. So there's nothing more that children of the Aquarian age love and will continue to love as we enter into this delightful, magical age of Aquarius than telling other people they're wrong. <laughs> exactly. And being too arrogant to even listen to your replies, let alone your cries of pain and suffering. No, it's it's be a nightmare. Oh my god! But I hope that once it levels out and the Pluto goes away, and we uh -huh. find things, there can be some wonderful things about an Aquarian age. It's, it's just not going to all be love and sunshine like the Pisces sort of thought. Totally. It and well, I think I like I like all three of those people. Obviously, they've all been on my podcast. BJ hasn't, but you know, I invited him, and he just you know didn't do it. Yeah. Well, you know, clearly but, problematic free thinker. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, but um, I find that it's interesting comparing the signs because Pisces is very mushy. Uh, it's very high on the, uh, very far toward the pillar of mercy, and very much about homogenizing people into a single collective but ill-defined Ill group. Uh, whereas Aquarius is extremely individualistic. Um, but I find that there can be a space of agreeing to disagree. Um, with Aquarius that I find, I think that's the way forward is realizing like, if somebody says you're absolutely wrong, maybe they're just saying what's true for them. And maybe we just need multiple irreconcilable perspectives to do this collective project of being human. Yeah. Yeah. Aquarians, they are, it, it's a, such an interesting combination, that energy of individuality and collectivism, right? Like yeah. they're, to be a value for the for the group otherwise the individuality is irrelevant but yeah but the individuality there's just homogeneity and, and the aquarius current doesn't really respect that it, no. <laughs> yeah differentiation within within unity so that's a very interesting thing but that uh, the real the real opportunity i think that might come along that we didn't mm -hmm. have piscean age again we're speaking in terms of i guess what you could call mega currents of energy if you want to look at it that way, um, totally. why not? The the Pisces was water, so like, yeah. mm -hmm. a fucking shit, no matter what. And <laughs> I've been, I just went through ten years of my son transitioning into Pisces, and now it's going into Aries. Thank God. But it's <laughs> Earth, so air and water. I know what it's like trying to have, deal with the Aquarius, Mars, Mercury, and Sun that I have all conjunct, mm -hmm. or the Mars. Wow. So I'm very, act, my actions and my thinking are Aquarian and I have Aquarian core and those two things also only really function together. So I can't really do things that I'm not, I have to be fully engaged in one thing. And, you know, that's why it's good at getting, it makes me good at getting things done and, 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 and achieving things, but it makes me bad at maybe doing multitasking, perhaps, 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 like maybe, I don't know. 
it's hard to say. Um, plus, I don't ever, I never analyze myself that much. But then, uh, you know, the, seeing how the Aquarian mind dealt with the Piscean experience was not, didn't work. It just, they didn't work. I had to go with the Piscean experience. I had to go with the flow and things. And the more I tried to think about it, the, the less sense it all made. Um, and I think that we'll see that conflict as we continue to move into the Aquarian age here. Um, with the, with the, uh, the emotions getting sort of, um, left behind and the, but if you do, de- cause if you deal with the mind on its own terms, you can communicate much better with Aquarians than Aquarian, than the Aquarian energy could uh, deal with the Piscean. You know, does that make sense? That's yes. the thing to get. Oh, it. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I feel like that, that archetypal shift is happening where you have, uh, people not caring so much about the feelings uh, and being more interested and in, rather than keeping everybody happy and keeping things copacetic, which is very, very Piscean. It's like, is everyone happy? Is everyone good? Is everyone taken care of? Aquarius is just more like, who cares? <laughs> Maybe everyone can individually deal with their own emotions. So let's just do what works logically for the group or otherwise. So, you know, we'd go our own way. Like Aquarius has no problem with the just doing their own thing. So when they come together for a group, it's for a very specific purpose. Um, and this is what you see with modern movements of all kinds it is very, very clearly defined, very logical. And it's very, um, very closed ranks, uh, not as much uh, uh, inter- room for interpretation. Uh, it's very much like this is what we're doing and this is what it's about and this is what we, we need to coalesce around um, and using argument to establish that really tight structure. And I find that it leads to leads to a lot of groupthink, uh, but I don't think it needs to. I think there can be a lot of respect for individual differences and allow people to um, come together for a certain project that only has overlap in that one that one arena. This is where um, the sacred geometry of the Visca Piscis, the two overlapping circles, uh, it's a MasterCard logo. People call it the Venn diagram. Um, but I use those overlapping circles as like a model for all human interaction because me and you and you and everyone else and me and everyone else, um, we're never going to overlap completely. So part of my circle is never going, there's going to be some part of my circle that doesn't overlap with yours, that doesn't mesh with yours. And same for you. But if we focus on the overlap, what we have in common, what we're here to achieve together, and we don't worry about other judgments or other things or everything else in the world, then we can accomplish stuff in that one specific area. And then our overlap can grow and become more beautiful and our connection could grow. But if we concentrate on the differences and all the things that we don't agree about, things that we don't have in common, that area grows and we separate more and more. Um, And so I find this happening online constantly where people come together for a certain purpose and they go, Hey, of the other people here are not exactly like me. That's a problem. This is why everybody else is wrong and I'm right. And then, and then the group disintegrates. And this is why you have this continual like coming together and then dispersion. And I think we're just learning how to navigate that difference and realize like, oh, we can work together on a specific project without being completely completely homogenized, without agreeing on everything. So, yeah. Do you think we're lucky or cursed to be uh, to be have our lives limited to the interim? Inter, uh, what's interregent rake true? What's that word? You know, intermediary period. Yeah. Yeah. The king interregional interregiary. I don't know. There's a word yeah, between the rulerships. Yeah. Yeah. But between the, so we, you know, we got to come out of the Piscean age and, and we're going to die before the Aquarian age really begins. So none of us at all on the planet are going to be around for the Aquarian age, but we just, oh. right. Cause it's not for another 80 years. Yeah, hundred. It's about 120 something years transitions between the signs, right? So 
you know, mm-hmm. only really got out of Pisces in our lifetimes, I believe, maybe even longer, maybe not quite, but let the astrologers update the, yeah. Do you, uh, do you, what do you think about that? Like this, the, the fact that we're, we're here in that intermedial phase. Oh, I think it's, uh, a hell. Sorry. It's a potential heaven for magicians and a potential hell for everyone else. Um, so I think that the, the chaos that comes from that confusion that comes from like one, uh, method of doing things into another. And we're, we're experiencing that in so many ways in so many transitionary periods through technology, through politics, through economics, through climate change, like everything that's changing. Um, it's not, it's far beyond the astrology is coinciding with it as it always does. Um, but there's so much upheaval, but I feel like that chaos is magic. That chaos is all of this energy that's freely available. And when you have a really uh, specific drive and focus and you don't know what to do with all of this energy that people don't know how to put together, you'll magnetize people. You'll be able to create incredible outsized results because everyone's looking for somebody who has any confidence in <laughs> or clue of what they're doing. And uh, when they see that, they want to be a part of it because people want to be a part of something that has a firm foundation, that has firm direction, and that's going someplace that's meaningful. And if you can provide that, then you'll have so much more influence, practically speaking, and you'll also be able to do magic, even if nobody knows about you and knows your existence in a much more effective way. I think for people that, you know, grew up in an age that was cozy, um, you know, I was an 80s kid, 90s kid, and it seemed like society had its stuff together and it seemed like there was a purpose to being in the, the United States of America and that we were going somewhere. And that's completely changed. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I feel that if you're if you're too attached to that mindset where you expect society to take care of you, to give you stuff, to give you a sense of purpose and to help you figure out how to live your life, it's going to be merciless until you start to claim your own power, whether that's through magic or any other way. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Excuse me. <clears throat> what other uh, gods than Hecate? Because I, I, you've probably heard. I guess if you listen to my podcast, you already know I have a. You know that was the first god that came to me, sort of. You know, I fought against it. Well, we're talking about experiences. Okay. So I'll run, I, I feel like I've also already talked about all my experiences on this podcast or all the ones that are sort of worth sharing. Cause a lot of them okay. will make sense in contact in context of, you know, yeah. tradition and, and practices I do like, mm-hmm. you know, like me reconnecting with an older guide that I haven't seen in a while to me, like that, that's not really significant to other people, but to me, it's like massive and significant. Uh-huh things than you know the stuff that that i would put a sort of private but the first time i connect with god is the god came to me is the way i look at it because i wanted to be one of yes. the three witches in my grade eight production of Macbeth. so you got to write down your three top choices i wrote which one two and three teacher said you're not a girl you can't be a witch um and then cast me as hecate nice thanks nice. Most people had to a sub role. So I was banked while I got killed and came back as a ghost. But I also was Hecate and put on my Wiccan robe and did a prayer and invocation. And all of a sudden the God form showed up in a massive way and basically took me over um, more or less. It was like all I could do to, to, to maintain my, my movements to the witches because I'd appear twice to the right after they summoned me. And all I was like, Oh, maybe the gods like have something to them more than, a symbolic connection because as a Wiccan in grade eight, especially I was mm-hmm. seeing, you know, all the gods are the triple goddess and all the gods yeah. are God. Mm-hmm. 
that's how they were on my altar. And, and they were just sort of cultural uh, artifacts of those two divine forces, of course, the triple goddess and the horned god. And that's what that was the all and end all of my universe was those two masculine and feminine archetypes. Yeah, absolutely. Just saying that's so problematic these days, right? I think it is probably illegal in Canada for me to actually describe male and female as archetypes. Um, uh, yeah. That's mm-hmm. the that's we've which it makes sense because the Aquarius is 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 all about androgyny and always always sort of has been. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, there's something some people don't like. <laughs> Yeah. As far as uh, uh, deities go, um, so my experiences with uh, Hecate were profound. I had uh, my only experience, real experience of um, channeling uh, was with that. And it was so, such a shame because I was alone doing my own ritual and uh, there was no one there to record it. Uh, <laughs> but it was speaking and then forgetting my words as I spoke and only being able to recall like the vague memory of it. And I've heard it referred to as like um, being ridden like a horse. That was very much the feeling as in you're still in your body, but something else has taken the wheel. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it was very profound. Session, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's what it does. Mounting is, is in Vodun. Mm-hmm. So the mount, you know, you want to maintain, that's the trick is to maintain yourself to some extent. Yeah, yeah. You want to be able to have have some control. Um, but it's a it's a it's a skill. Like that's not something that I take to naturally. I've only had the one experience of it, but it was really astonishing to have to have that. Um yeah, my other experiences with the deities have been really few. I've had some interactions with Odin because um actually my first interaction with any kind of magic was studying the old Norse runes because I wanted to get a tattoo. And uh, I realized that I didn't want a kanji tattoo. I didn't want a language that I didn't understand because I didn't actually know what they were tattooing. I've heard lots of funny stories about that. Um, but uh, if I could make like a cool bind rune, maybe that would make a good tattoo. Uh, so I started studying uh, runes and realized like, oh, you can meditate with these. And I'd already learned like uh, Buddhist meditation. So I'm like, okay, I'll try it. And so I started meditating on the runes and started developing a sense of their energy and uh, the philosophy behind each of them and their meanings. Uh, and that was really, uh, profound. And through that, um, was it Odin showed up at some point, um, relatively recently actually, and, uh, been having interesting interactions with him, but it's really, uh, yeah, not even sure where that's going to go, but it's fun to, I don't know. It's fun for deities to take an interest in you to figure out, you know, what's your relationship with this incredibly old archetypal power and what, what they want from you and how you can, I always find it's an issue of domain where it's like through participating in your life, they get a bigger footprint in the world in some way. And so that I feel is usually a lot of the exchange that happens between humans and deities is that you do, you get the benefits of working with them and they get a, a bigger impact and expression of the world through you. Yeah. I think that's somehow part of it for sure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I like, I like Aaron Leach's description of how God's, manifest and or born within your life or on your you know altar as opposed to right it's not the 
it's not the macrocosmic one, but it's a microcosmic mini one that's born and then grows and you take care of it. And if it develops, and if you do, it develops in a good way. If you don't, it could become a little, little monstrous or, or just evaporate or just, you know, yeah, you probably, I, I think get afflicted and evaporate is more likely, or maybe it would become something, something more sinful you don't treat it well but you know what if you do then it builds up this power and the altar gains power mm-hmm. well the idea he talks about is ashway i believe which i think mm-hmm. is african traditional religion so you know it's it's very we're i love the, you know the confluence of traditions that we're learning so much from these days it makes me really sad whenever i see the continued bifurcation between uh uh you know purists really <laughs> wants to be so purist it is the age of the new puritanism right it really is everyone's yeah. everyone's like you know at once proclaiming sexual liberation and then like in the next sentence slut shaming everyone mm-hmm. you know yeah. you know it, it's it's so it's so wild uh it's like you really can't you can't really have it both ways <laughs> you know yeah. I, I mean the the only thing i'm a purist about is possibly monism but that's uh uh that's completely <laughs> It's completely open-ended because if you have a philosophical structure in which all things are one, then you're still relating to that one through every deity you work with, every angel you invoke. You're relating to that one through every person you talk to. Like everything is a manifestation of that one essential entity. And it's through developing a relationship with that, um, you learn to uh, extend that relationship to having good relationships with other people one-on-one, with other uh, with deities one-on-one, with specific one-on-one and finding out how that relation and with yourself as well and i find that that um finding that essential unity and that again that space of overlap where we're we're made to be different um but the if there's something that we can come together and do together then that's that's essential and we should do that and and the more that we can honor each other through that that collective work uh, the more that we each become greater yeah yeah exactly i mean that's why i would like western magic to grow together more Rather than yeah. you know, the mo- West, the Grimoire, mm-hmm. purists over there. And again, I, you know, I love, I love being. I'm a very traditionalist kind of person, right? It, if if I hadn't done all the magical initiatory and spiritual stuff I had done, I'd be such a different person. I think people have. It's hard. It's hard to understand. But mm-hmm. like as an Aquarian, like we're naturally very dogmatic, very authoritarian, and very yeah. arrogant. And mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, let's just say I was a very different person in high school. But but you know that stuff sort of get you you can't stay that way and go through and finish the Golden Dawn system. Exactly. Like in order. Oh my God! Like the Monsei yeah. Spin and Portal was brutal. It was a brutal alembic. Um, you know, and if people have similar experiences doing the Abramelin, that's great. Um, though I don't often. I usually hear more about people who are like you know, the profundity of the appearance of a spirit rather than the transformation of the alchemical process we go through in the golden dawn in that portal grade. Right. Like months, you know, and for me, I was so young, I was 18 when I started portal. So, you know, made sense. So from Easter grade 12 to winter solstice, you know, of Mm -hmm. of college, like that was just, yeah, it kicked the shit out of me. I had to drop out of school actually in months um, because it was just, it was too much. It was too much. Um, yeah. I've never really described it in those terms before, but I'd like to see the, the, the purists of, of whatever grimoires. And again, I respect the traditionalism. My, my dogmatic Aquarian self loves it, which is why I practice like purist Enochian, 
these days. So I love it. I love it. You know, I yeah. just, these, I go into a completely different state with these prayers and the preparations. It's, just, it's a whole thing in itself. It really is stepping into a whole other special little world, uh, which is different from when I use like the, the golden dawn and Nokian of my regular modern magical practice. But ultimately I'd like to see grimoire practitioners become more hospitable to what I like to think of as modern magic. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think it's definitely possible. The uh, part of the Hermetic Kabbalah, as I was taught of it, is this idea of a path of redemption, that there is a, a fall built into the the structure of manifestation, that divinity comes down to the density of material world and through being born in material bodies, it realizes that we're all such assholes <laughs> and that there's so much that needs to be done to purify ourselves, uh, you know, theurgic work to become more like this beautiful, pure divinity that we all uh, manifested from. And the uh, uh, analogy that I use for the possibility of redemption is actually the human body. Like every body in your cell, every cell in your body is essentially a kind of individual. It has its own cell walls. It has its own organelles and it's its own world unto itself. And yet uh, it's able to work in perfect harmony with all the cells around it, even though there's so much radical difference between, you know, a brain cell and a liver cell, yet you need both of them to enjoy alcohol. Um, so <laughs> these things work together in really profound ways. Um, and they are all you, like they're able to work together with such complete ease that they can create a being that's bigger than any of them. And I feel like that's what redemption is really about. It's actually just health. It doesn't mean that we're going to be living in a permanent utopia, that everything's going to be happy in every moment. But there's going to be a healthiness to humanity overall that we've never experienced before. And I think that we can start to develop that in our own lives um, by just deciding to not be in conflict, to to develop harmonious relationships with people we can, and to um, not worry so much or not spend time with people that we can't get along with. And I find that the more that we structure our lives in this way, then the more that we um, find ways to improve each other's lives and empower each other. And when you're in a community of people that generally want the best for you, it's the best feeling. This is what I love from learning, meeting other magicians and working with other magicians. Like there's so many incredibly genuine, kind-hearted people uh, in my community that I've worked with and done magic with. And we just want each other to succeed without qualification. We're willing to do anything we can to help each other. And when you have that kind of support, it's life-changing. So I just want, I think that's, that's what I've experienced from the magic community is people who have come to magic from different paths, different ways, doing uh, sometimes different kinds of magic. But we've converged on this, uh, this common uh, a sort of Golden Dawn style magic that's become really popular because of the availability of all these books and all these courses. And we've used that as this foundation to work together, to support each other and to understand each other and have compassion for each other. And that's, uh, you know, completely changed my life. I think the magic community can be more like that in the broad strokes when we realize that even if we're doing totally different traditions, we can still perform different, uh, different functions towards a single goal. Um, and I feel that is so essential when it comes to uh, people asking questions about magic and getting advice. You'll get, here's a grimoire interpretation and answer. Here's a golden dawn answer. Here's a Wiccan answer. Here's all these different answers. And then people can start to figure out, okay, what makes sense to me? What do I want to do? And there's such a trust and empowerment that comes with that, that comes with presenting people with multiple genuine options and saying, who are you? 
what is your will, free will saying? Um, who do you want to become? And, you know, trusting your own intuition to guide you down the best, best path. Cause even if it uh, doesn't lead to success every time, the practice of learning to work with your intuition, I find is completely life changing and allows you to define yourself. Um, and that's what I find is so essential in magical communities is for people to be free to be themselves, to not necessarily be stuck with a certain dogma. And if people have that, uh, and it doesn't mean that you can, be anything. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can say that you're anything. You can't uh, claim that you're you're this kind of uh, magician when you're not doing any of that. Um, but uh, it, it's a way of uh, respecting different approaches. And if we can uh, respect each other and the way that we produce results with magic, then we can work towards common goals and we can work towards the goal of, co- of mutual empowerment, helping you to be more effective in your magic practice. And I will help you and support you in every way that I can. And yeah, that's what I find most, uh, most miraculous about the way, ways that we fit together. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think as we improve our understanding of historical magic too, strangely that will improve our current situation because we had, we had a better place for it in culture back then. We had uh, uh, more of an understanding that it had any place in culture back then. It was part of mm-hmm. daily lives apparently as we continue to learn more right the, the yeah uh, yeah the the tr- the daily magic rituals of of everyday people it's crazy how much it's been wiped out from our history like we we don't get you don't ever get taught in school or history that really that people used to believe in magic or if you do get told that you aren't told why right like yeah. they there's a, there is an intentional misinformation program in our society to distract people from this. Just like uh, as soon as uh, Dr. Puka had Dean Radin on her podcast, like mm-hmm. basically froze her channel, <laughs> like moved exactly. yeah. her channel to start getting views and followers again. And I've had that done to me so many times that, you know, I'm permanently shadow banned, um, you know, which is mm-hmm. crazy, but that's how we deal with troublemakers. Now we just cut them out of the economy like that. And they're never going to really go anywhere. It's like in Canada, we have a blacklist. Once you have problems with one landlord or a dispute, we put you on your blacklist. You can never rent a place in the country for the rest of your life. Oh yeah. There's so many. Crazy. You think that it would be illegal to do that. And it probably is, but no one cares. And they do it anyway. Just like, you know, they, all the people they mass evicted during lockdowns when they weren't allowed to work their jobs, they're all dead now. They're all dead. A bunch of them, some are my friends and some are friends, you know, people I know lost so many people just dead because we uh, decided to, you know, unilaterally just enforce who could, who, who could be a part of our, our world and who can't be based on what, you know, wrong thing, essentially, it's essentially wrong thing. And uh, to see that people like Dean Radin, can't even have their research be presented without being called pseudoscientists and without huge corporations like Google banning them. Like I listened to 40 of his interviews after she did hers because I was like, Oh, I hadn't really checked in on the science of magic since the Uh, early two thousands. I, you know, you know, I dug deep of course, when I first got into, it, I looked into parapsychology, all that stuff, but it moves slowly. So you can check out for a while. And it's like, Oh, they're still testing remote viewing in this. (laughs) And they're still studying like, you know, because the science has to come along as well. And then, the, you know, but the fact is I watch tons of tons of that stuff. Normally, mm-hmm. if I watch one kind of video online from from one little thing. I usually get flooded with that thing. 
Mm-hmm. Him, I watched tons of his stuff. Nothing from him's ever recommended. I have to put in the full name of any channels that he's on pretty much most of the time to find him. And I know we have new laws and regulations for, for that stuff in Canada that's not affecting the states recently because of mm-hmm. Trudeau um, and his uh, new bill that he passed. So my my view, our views of the internet now is not your experiences in America of the internet. Canadians now now have a totally different experience of the internet um, because of that, um, which is unfortunate as well because it means we're not again separate, you know, fragments community. But like, mm-hmm. how can how can we we be silencing, mm-hmm. even asking questions or even presenting information or studies? Uh, I don't I don't understand how we can sort of be so rigid in our worldview and yet so conv- and so terrified of any challenge to it. How do Absolutely. you have the hubris to be like, I'm so certain I right, I'm right. Anyone else who has a different idea, I'm going to shut them down and make sure they can't pay rent and can't feed themselves. And I'm going to fucking destroy their lives. Like this is the, the world I experience. This is the world uh, I, this is my experience of reality. This is how are. we're right, you're wrong, and because you disagree with us, we're going to kill you. That's what that's yeah. my experience of reality. That's been my experience of reality throughout my life. And mm-hmm. um, for me, I'd like I'd like that experience to change, but I think there's only so much that we can do. Mm-hmm. What do you think? To what extent do you think we can change in our lifetimes the world to be a bit more hospitable to? Mm-hmm to the challenge to, mm-hmm. I guess you could call it the, the cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is something I got from reading meditations on the tarot, which I have a great course on, um, is the idea that there's a huge difference between, um, was it, uh, force and genuine authority, genuine authority rules with the scepter. It is nonviolent. It rules because you trust the person in charge to do what's best for everyone. When you put down the scepter and start using the sword, that's because your authority is gone. Your authority is waning. It's because you need to force people to do things um, because you still have, um, what was it? You, you still have the ability to um, exercise and control people, but you don't have the ability to make people believe in you anymore. And that's the, the crisis that we're having right now is a crisis of faith and governments all around the world and institutions of all kinds. Um, and the crisis of faith just belies the fact that we're in a huge transition. It may take a while. They may be able to hang on to that power for a long time. But I think it is fundamentally about power. It's not about truth. Um, it's not because they believe that anything they, they, uh, think is true. They might. Um, but I think there's this primordial, um, sense of I'm in control and I will hang on to it the nice way if I can, but the not nice way if I, if I can't. And that's kind of just human nature, unfortunately. Like we don't let go of things very easily. <laughs> And so you can expect that people in institutions of power, this is exactly what we were talking about with the scientific revolution, the replication crisis in psychology, the people who are in entrenched positions of power have the option to not listen. They have the option to not give up their posts because their uh, posts are based on research that has proven to be not uh, uh, not verifiable. Uh, they have the option to uh, use force rather than using, using authority. And so they do. Um, and so it's going to take a lot longer because of that. So it's really a delay tactic. I mean, the things that um will uh whatever new structures arise 
will arise because they have genuine authority because people actually believe in them. Maybe not everybody, but enough people. And the the structures that nobody believes in that are just clinging to uh, power through force, they're going to slowly go away because that force is only is a, it has a shelf life. Once you start using force, it's because the authority is gone. And now it's a waiting game. And I feel like that's what the rest of us need to do is just play the waiting game. Now that waiting may take the rest of our lives. It's not going to be super quick, um, but we're still going to be part of a positive movement where doing what we can to the extent that we can. Um, and I do really appreciate the amount of um, freedom we still have uh, when it comes to having a podcast like this, uh, was it creating communities around magic, like talking to people. Um, I, mean, I live in Boulder. It's a really spiritually open place where I can just go to a public park and do magic with people. And people like may turn their heads, but nobody really cares. Uh, and, you know, there's so much, so much allowance and tolerance that we haven't, uh, you know, didn't have during the inquisition let's say that <laughs> um and uh yeah i think there's tremendous opportunities to just to focus on yourself focus on your life focus on making everything good for you so that you have a stable foundation to support others this is the problem is that we were raised um i mean i was like an as an 80s baby 90s baby in a society that's just expected society to do everything um and so when society is falling apart um, people say, oh, well, we need a new society, but people don't realize that the society is built from individuals and in particular individual leaders. Like no matter how collective a movement is, if you don't have individual leaders, nothing gets started. Um, so you need people to organize and figure out what to do to uh, work together with each other to create, um, create movements. And uh, if yeah, we don't stop oil. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay, right. And uh yeah, so, we've so sad to see the, the, the younger generations today not understand the value of, of creation and how hard it is to create things. Rather and than right. mm -hmm. create our own fun, you and I growing up as kids, right? Oh, you know, really? It's like what do we gotta do? Well we have some sticks and some rocks, but we can mm -hmm. make it work. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Little sticks knives pretend they're swords and then chase each other around and stab each other <laughs> yeah but no this is um work back how you just press a button and you're you're in a vr world game right so it takes no work to to have mm -hmm. to have fun anymore so you don't have to there's no experience you just press a button and then you go into this imaginary world and start destroying shit yeah yeah, yeah. with a lot of well, yeah, but I think that's part of the alchemy of what's happening to us now is that that world is so easy, um, but it leads to such incredible control and suffering. And it's like, okay, you have the good side and the bad side. Figure out how you want to respond to it. When is it going to be bad enough that – how is it going to get bad enough that you actually decide to start creating rather than just consuming, to start to claim your own power? And what's amazing is that we're in such a steady decline that I think it's it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until people decide that they've had enough and that they actually want to start doing something other than mindlessly consuming whatever is been, being fed to them. And I think at that point, uh, everything changes. And it's uh, it changes one individual life at, the at a time. But if you can transform your own life, the society is just a, a, a series of individual lives. Like that will start to have a massive net effect once enough individual people start to do it. And that's something I'm really uh, passionate about with building the magic communities. If people can make good individual lives, we can have a good society. It's not necessarily that we have to completely rearrange the society first to downstream have everyone have a good life. Um, I think it can come from the bottom up, and that's where I'm focusing on. But that's also my part of it. Yeah, Boulder.
older. Yeah. Now Naropa University. Yes. Mm-hmm. Alan totally. School. How appropriate is it that I quoted Allen Ginsberg earlier? <laughs> Very appropriate. Yeah. It's a great place. Yeah. Um, does it have many groups already? Like it must have some sort of small pagan community or something being such a. Um, oh, yeah. I just haven't been that involved since. A lot of the uh, a lot of the spirituality out here tends to be extremely on the new age side of things, and so as more of the you know occultism where it's disciplined, where there are, there's like books to read and there's a structure and there's a philosophy and there's daily practice. Um, that amount of discipline doesn't always uh, go over here, um, but I have started to make um, actually through the Facebook group. It's so weird now they have to go to the digital to find people in the real world, um, and yeah. Uh, that's been, uh, that's been cool though, is finding more people in Boulder local and started to have my first, uh, in-person, uh, magic lessons, uh, as a result of that in Denver. So there's, uh, more community opportunities happening, um, as we, as we expand, but it's, uh, still slow going. It's just a different, different take on spirituality, but a lot of people are interested in it because they found the, um, at least for them, the obstacles with other paths, like, the same thing that uh, Damien and I experienced with meditation. Like we reached a certain level w- with it and then it's like, okay, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know how to get to another transformation, another next level um, after 10 years of meditation in my case. And I feel a lot of people are finding frustrations with uh, other spiritual paths and that's leading them to take a look at what else is out there. And a lot of people are finding magic through that. Okay. What is, a, what is all this about um, by, by looking at other paths and realizing like, Oh, here's a really, structured disciplined way of doing magic that reportedly gets astonishing life-changing results maybe we should look into that uh, maybe we should read more about that and uh, yeah i didn't mention uh previously but another um one of the most powerful personal experiences i had was through the holy guardian angel so that's one of the reasons i emphasize with is that through teaching the holy guardian angel is where i had a lot of my biggest personal transformations and um one of them was is what i call contact where it's not the full coronation of getting a head spirit. Um, but it's uh, a sense in which the Holy Guardian Angel as a presence starts to be become more part of your etheric body um, than uh, just like a concept, an idea that you're working with or something outside of you that you communicate. There's some sort of merge happening there. The way that I experienced it was uh, over the course of an afternoon, I'd been depressed since the age of 12 and uh, finding an my heart opening up into an overwhelming self-love that I'd never experienced before that I have experienced every moment since. Uh, and having that be the result of over 40 days of continually invoking this spirit using its name and symbol. And the same week that that happened, I lost my job of two years, and my girlfriend of five years. And it's like, it was really astonishing to me uh, how much that spirit and authenticity work together where I was, uh, everything that was inauthentic in my life immediately vanished <laughs> as soon as this energy started coming in. And then I started commu- uh, communicating to this energy to figure out, okay, what do I do now? And it was scary for a while. For um, a, f- a couple of months, I realized, I-, I asked a question, did I just lose my survival instinct? Is that all, is that, all that happened? <laughs> and it was through really trusting my intuition deeply, uh, again, like doing the uh, the magical choice rather than the logical choice. Uh, that I've been able to make it as a professional spiritual teacher and completely transform my life to the way it is now. Um, so, yeah. There's always the worry that you're enculturating yourself just mm. 
becoming your own cult guru and like, but at the same time, brainwashing yourself into, you know, some, some pocket of reality that you have to, of course, uh, you know, commodified, keep alive, even though it's ontologically empty. That's, that's the, uh, the argument, right? That's back to the, the, the horrifying oh, skepticism. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's also the existential terror of other people. Like you can't look inside someone's head. So you don't know their attainments. You don't know what they've experienced. Um, there's no receipts for any of the magical experiences that you've had. There's no receipts for the magical experiences that I've had. So I'm not really worried about how much people believe in me. I'm more worried about them. What can I help them to accomplish? Like that's, that's amazing. Um, that's what will really believe, make people believe in magic. Something that happens to them. Anything that happened to me, this is the trouble when it comes to talking about experiences is as soon as you talk about experiences, people say, Oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> and I don't care. Like it was good for me. It doesn't have to be good for you. It wasn't your experience. If you want your own good experience through magic. Here's how I did it. Try it. See if it works for you. If not, there's all these other traditions that you can try too. That's why what I like about building a magical community is people can find things that work for them. They don't necessarily have to take my courses or do what I did um, to experience uh, amazing benefits. Um, and that's what uh, that's what I'm really concerned about is that I don't think uh, I'll ever be able to convince somebody uh, that my experiences are the way that they are. But it's if I can help them to have their own then I don't need to. Right. It's your faith that has healed you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Christ's robe and uh, is healed. And one of my favorite lines in that New Testamental passage is, and he, and he felt his power leave him. Mm -hmm. It's her faith that healed her when she grabbed his robe, but yet his power left him and he noticed it. It's probably one of the most honest lines. Beautiful. The New Testament, like magically honest, but also just because yeah. like that's an experience every magician has had, not necessarily of a woman grabbing your robe, though. Mm -hmm. um, God knows the ladies love robes. Um, <laughs> probably not. I don't think uh, I don't think that's a, maybe who knows the good ones do. Yes. Let's attract <laughs> robes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, she it's her faith that heals her. And yet the power still comes out of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, this is, uh, what was okay. it? This was a lot of the, the, I mean, so this is a whole nother topic that's fascinating. It's like looking at Jesus as a magician. Um, and this is, uh, one thing that I read from like Don Michael Greer's occult book. Um, but I've seen it in other sources, which is this account of magician. Yeah. 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 Simply, uh, someone who learned magic, you know, possibly through the ages between 12 and 30 that we don't have an account of. And then once he mastered it, started going around making all these, um, incredible changes and transformations and creating this entire movement. Uh, and I think there's incredible magical power in the idea that, um, people give away their power to authority figures. People give away their, and not just magical ones, like people are always scared of the cult leader, but like, there's also the politician. There's also the CEO. There's also all of these people in society that everybody gives away their power to. And they say, well, I'm powerless. Well, yeah. Cause you gave it all away. The moment that you reclaim your power, <laughs> you realize you have so many more options than you could imagine before, because you didn't imagine that you had power in the first place. You gave it all away. But the moment that, uh, and this is why we need leaders who are willing to say it is your faith that healed you or willing to say it is your own power. That's doing this. It's nothing you're getting from me. I'm not the vendor of this. I'm just helping you to, helping to point you to yourself where you already have the power to do everything that you want to do in the first place. Yeah, amen.
Yeah. Amen. Hmm. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. My mind's gone empty for a second there. <laughs> oh, that's all right. That's all right. Space, who knows? Who knows? I yeah. bet part of these long-form podcasts, I guess, is sometimes you're thinking, man, it would cool. be great to, be able to do all of these in person. If I could do an in-person, if I could be an in-person podcaster, I just don't think there's enough, uh, enough, mm-hmm. uh, enough uh, commodification yet of our of our ontologically empty uh tradition <laughs> oh to use your adorno phrase i mean huh yeah do you, do you use adorno's analysis well that's i mean that's why i can't take adorno's listeners we could accomplish mm-hmm. <laughs> if not yeah. not um ontology <laughs> ontological reality perhaps at least commodification to the extent that we can continue to have great events and maybe more uh like you know i I wish there was like a magical podcast like show you know like the, like how totally. they political and other kinds of shows that um you know wreck my head want to well, show magicians are sitting around and doing that that'd be great i mean we are magicians if we want to live in that world we just have to manifest it <laughs> Well, that's what we're talking about, right? You and I have had some interesting conversations. I think I, when I have already um, outlined, you know, at least uh, the initial 10% of our first uh, board game venture. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. And thanks to things to make it more more well-known, more mainstream. Um, it's funny to me. I can't really take Adorno's argument seriously when money itself is a talisman. Like I have a dollar bill that I use in a lot of talks here because there's an all saying I here. There's a pyramid here. There's so many occult symbols here. It's it's a talisman. It's not. It's made of paper. It's only there because we believe. It's only has value because we believe it has value, and we believe it has inherent value. And what's astonishing is we think money, paper, has inherent value. We think that we as human beings have contingent value, as as backwards as you can get it. <laughs> we have inherent value. Money has contingent value. Like there's, um, and it's it's so backwards where their society is built because we designed these structures of magic of imagination to funnel power in specific ways to benefit a minority of people at the expense of everybody else and once you understand magic you're like oh i just i just don't have to take that game seriously anymore i can start to create my own value and what's amazing about our society is that you can turn value into money so if you create something that's valuable people will pay you money for it um and uh, through that you can start to engage into the same system you don't even have to start building your own parallel society that uh, based on a different form of exchange you can just establish that what you are doing has value and is worth interest and then other people will participate freely um and i think that's an incredible opportunity and we should use it to create um all kinds of weird and interesting societies that uh, shouldn't be possible but are uh just because we can communicate and start to express value in ways that other people haven't normally uh experienced it yeah indeed mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yes, and and 
when it comes to the mysteries, mm-hmm. mysteries, their value is in the experience of them, right? And so, you know, not to have authority to mm-hmm. even do magic for yourself. You have to be in alignment with, like the Emperor card suggests, yeah. thing with with true authority and true self. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the crown, the scepter, the shield, the throne, all these traits of the, of the Emperor card, which Tomberg, I think, yeah. is one of the less understood cards in the tarot. I think that's generally true, actually, for tarot readers. I think that is a challenging. I think we all do struggle. I think people do struggle with the Emperor energy. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So I, white man's bad. <laughs> not seated. And he's not actually standing. And his legs are crossed, preventing motion. The idea that yeah. Thor is not meant to do shit. Exactly. <laughs> your spiritual authority in your life. It's all mm-hmm. about it's all about this vertical access, right? Not mm-hmm. the horizontal. That's the mistake you're making. And the horizontal role is what leads into the Hierophant or the Pope. And I'll be giving that lecture at the end of the month as I did the Emperor last month. Beautiful. There for that? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was there for the first part of it. I thought it was brilliant. I made it an open one for everyone. So thanks. Yeah, thanks for that's good. Yeah, no, I, I'm only you know we're only a quarter of the way down through this two year course on Tomberg. If anyone wants to check it out, we're having a good time. But it's it's challenging material, of course. Um, but I'm I'm loving. I've been studying it since since 2000, and so I'm loving getting to. The first time I was like learning it. The second time I was sort of wrestling and struggling with it and seeing which parts uh you know i could work with more and then this this time it's like what do i think the main parts of it that someone should understand if they're approaching the entire sequence of of the 22 arcana as a spiritual exercise starting with the magician and ending with the world but with the fool right before the world like that's a whole different process that i'm enjoying the experience of exploring for sure but the mystery of the emperor leading to the the Pope or the Hierophant, of course, I prefer the term Hierophant as I'm now a lapsed papist myself. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, faithful. You know, <laughs> I was once an RCRC, <laughs> a Roman wow. Catholic RC. Now, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that's, that's for the best. But the benediction, right? The fifth mm-hmm. wound, the idea that your, that your authority vertically manifests finally horizontally without action without violence with just through sheer alignment Mm -hmm. of with yourself absolutely and then then you can then you can share that through benediction and the the step for the emperor to become more than the emperor is is through the hierophant and that's through the benediction and it's this yeah empowering of others absolutely not handing over part of your power even though some of it might leave you as in the case of Christ, mm-hmm. but um, through, through others' faith, you know, I love the idea that you could take someone's power with your faith. That's kind of wild, but you know, <laughs> I'm no, just... well, it's, it's the idea that it wasn't, it wasn't ever her, it wasn't ever his power to begin with. She projected power onto him as this miraculous figure. And then uh, the miracle happened. And he said, it's your own faith that has healed you. And then her power went back into herself because he realized, Oh, this was mine the entire time. I just projected it onto him because I didn't believe in myself yet. And uh Yeah. That's that's really powerful. It would be so fun to deconstruct that all with you right now, but I'm not. Yeah. 
we should we should we should deconstruct that at a later date and like break that sound i would love to one day do a new testament sort of magic oh, yeah. course that would be such a great so uh my <laughs> theological college um i'd love to put them to a magical more ma- to magical use for others but uh the idea i think that's really powerful is this idea yes yeah, so the alignment leading to benediction of of the the horizontal the only thing you can yeah. really to someone else is is sort of a, your blessing and of course the yeah the blessing isn't yours to give it's god's to give and faith therefore is a gift from god right you can't you can't enforce it on anyone all you can do is offer what blessings you have or laying on of hands or initiation but again you're just initiating all you can do is initiate someone they have to walk the journey you can like stamp yeah. the ticket and be like take that path yeah. it's, it's nice and there's a <laughs> i like it work for me coming on the way and like it's great and if that path it might be faster but you have to you know throw some ropes up and and get your hands bloodied or something right you know it's their path and uh Mm -hmm. yeah yeah to me it's just uh what was it i find one of the most pure expressions of divinity is the free will of other people like if i can help them to express their free will in a way that harms nobody else and is good for them uh, that's phenomenal. And you run into so many obstacles doing that because so much of a society is built around the idea that people want to be saved from being themselves. Uh, they don't want the responsibility of making a choice and realizing this is all my choice and this is all my doing. And anything bad that happens of it is a true reflection of me that and so, where I need to improve. Um, but even though that's difficult, I feel that's the only space where we can actually have real growth as, uh, as individuals. And so if you can help somebody to look at their own uh, freedom, their own uh, free choice and say, okay, what do you want to do? Because nobody can save you from being being yourself. Even if you try to give away your power, um, it'll be a bad experience for you. Um, the only way you're ever going to be happy is that if you claim your own power, if you claim your own freedom and you use it in a way, whatever way you can um, to to do what you really want to do. And the, the idea that, um, you know, we're all so different. There's billions of us. And yet we're all completely unique. Like that itself is a miracle. And the idea that we need to honor this, we need to help each person find what is your unique flourishing? What are you uniquely good at? How can you uniquely contribute to this whole collective human experience? And the idea that, and just believing in people, there's so much power in just believing in someone that they can find something true about themselves that is beneficial and will be recognized by the world. Um, helps to bring them to that stage of transformation magic is really just the tools in that journey for me like ways to help people to dig deep into themselves to discover themselves to purify and to start to exert their will in ways that they never thought possible uh in order to live the life that they want contribute to society in whatever uh, way they want and again if we uh, build uh, our relationships with other people and our engagement with the world on a, a foundation of mutual benefit, trying to benefit ourselves and also benefit others in a win-win scenario that I think that, uh, you know, lifts all ships that, that uh, will help all of us to succeed. So. Mm-hmm. What, what's the most uh, mm-hmm. exciting kind of magical work you've been doing these days that, either takes you back to or keeps you in the, the sort of neophyte state of mind, the, that open state of, of learning that you have to stay in as a teacher, otherwise you're fucked. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest uh, work for me has been, um, what was it? Uh, just talking to stuff 
So this is uh, something, there's like this deep undercurrent of animism in lots of different mag magical traditions. Um, for the Hermetic tradition, John Michael Greer's occult uh, workbook uh, was actually really interesting for me, the way he talks about all matter, uh, even the densest, most inanimate matter, having some seed of potential spirit. And the idea that in the most rarefied spirit in existence, there is some seed of matter and that these are both reflections of each other in some way. And that uh, we can use um, what's it, basically personification to start to develop new relationships with things and to gain new access uh, to things. And so that's been the biggest edge of my development is, um, yeah, personifying different parts of myself, different stages of my life and realizing like, oh, this is why I have troubles in this area of my life. Um, and start to reconciling the different people that I am, because we have this whole sense of being an entire collective uh, unit of identity. And the idea that the people we used to be may be in conflict with the people we are in all kinds of fascinating ways. And that developing verbal communications and relationships with those other um, parts of ourselves can be really healing. Um, it can really help us to uh, start to find stuff that got lost just because we closed the book on that chapter of our lives, stop looking at it, but it still continued to affect our lives. Um, and so it's intensely psychological way of doing magic. Um, but I find that that uh, personification in, in using magic in that process too, like using invocations to, uh, to heal and to ameliorate um, situations and, and events has been wonderfully transformative. Uh, so a lot of my, a lot of my work has been, been with that in addition to just um, developing a course on the uh, Zodiac now. So doing zodiacal invocations and really intensely doing one Zodiac 12 times every day um, and just really piling on that energy until something changes until like my personality changes in a remarkable way. My uh, life situation changes in a remarkable way. And then noticing how each of these energies has a current. And if you push on that button repeatedly, that current will start to express itself uh, and, and transform your life. And then finding, yeah, and just reinitiating myself in that whole process once again, and uh, just appreciating how amazing that is and how unpredictable it can be. Yeah, it, it's, it's so easy to underestimate the magical significance of the of the phrases invoke often and inflame thyself with prayer. Prayer, exactly. Mm -hmm. Crowley didn't repeat those all the time uh, for no reason. He you know, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, when Absolutely. stuff. So yeah, people, it's the hardest thing, of course, as a teacher is to help people do that. Um, oh yeah. To actually have the discipline to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, what I, the amount of people over my whole lifetime, and this is not just a comment on current students or, or passes is like, there's always been, the amount of students I know who have like struggled to do, they, like they end up doing, doing magic to have the motivation and the discipline to do magic regularly. Magic. Right. Which is, which is, mm -hmm. which is kind of awesome um, and hilarious at the same time. Right. It makes sense. That is a great way to approach it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there, there, the, there's, right. In my in my teaching work, there's two shaman angels I've been working with nonstop for the last couple of years, who wow. have facilitated mm -hmm. what I'm doing because I teach a weekly class every single week. Um, nice. You know, on a if, you know, if I'm lucky, I might be able to get away with only 10, 20 hours prep, but usually it's 
a lot more. It's a good chunk more than that. And, uh, that's cause, you know, it's, I've gotten, you know, it's grown. My school's grown in the last, uh, this year, especially that's why, which is why I've done very few podcasts. Cause you know, which, which is lucky for me that the podcast wasn't a pillar of my livelihood or anything. <laughs> um, so I can, so when I, when I knew that I had the, the opportunity to teach more people, I could really put the time in and, uh, take time for one-on-one and that sort of stuff. So yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I've, um, I need to work on that. The, uh, the biggest thing that I found is just, um, keep finding new people. Like that's been my, my biggest, uh, success is just continually find more and more people to work with, more and more people to, more and more clients to do magic with. And then among those people, some of them are going to wash out and they just accept like maybe magic's not for them. Maybe they don't have the discipline. Maybe something they need to come back to later. And this is something that I find with so many people is that they find magic, dabble in it. Uh, either they get results and they get scared. Um, that happened, uh, that also happened to me. Um, or they get, uh, what's it? They get distracted by mundane things. Um, or it just falls off for whatever reason. Uh, and I found that, uh, it can be difficult to motivate people. Um, but if you look for people who are already motivated for, you know, whatever reason, you can build a life around those people. So I've just concentrated on finding clients who actually are disciplined and want to do work. And then I can direct them. I can say, this is the work you should be doing. What are the challenges in your life? How can we start using magic to get, um, help you get over those challenges? And at the same time, initiating them through through elements, through planets, uh, to deeply understand each of these energies and how they can uh, radically change their lives. And uh start to build that magical repertoire of these are the tools that I have to work with. And then you can start combining them in interesting ways as well, um, invoking the same current on different levels of reality in order to have an outsized effect. And uh, these are the things that, you know, encourage my clients to do to start to direct their discipline. But I try to find a lot of clients that already have discipline to create changes um, in their lives, which a lot of people do. A lot of people are self-motivated. I've had a lot of clients that are, um, you know, have their own business, that are health nuts, uh, that just do things that take an incredible amount of discipline in the first place. And like my life really changed when I lost weight. I was super fat as a kid. Like this is part of the, the trauma of my childhood is being uh, like, oh, almost 300 pounds in high school. And like being being on the bottom of the social ladder where just like anybody who was having a bad day could just like insult me and terrorize me to get lay off some steam. And that was that was normal. That was that's, that, that society. So um and the hmm? i'm a fatty i get it <laughs> oh my gosh yeah yeah and it was uh, it was miserable mm-hmm. I, well and i've also done the extremes i've i've like you know i yeah. i was 300 pounds in one year um wow no yeah no that's incredible talking unless if you but unless you know me and if you know i'm you know us magicians are capable of pretty some drastic changes. Plus, I, w- I found out I was celiac, so I cut out gluten, and it's like I melted. It's like, I'm like 425 to 130 pounds and felt great. It was awesome. Of course, yeah. everyone discovered heroin. <laughs> Would have been yeah. easy like become a heroin addict for two years or something. But no, that's horrible. Don't take that advice. Oh, my God. No one do that. Okay, right. Yeah, but they're into whatever new stuff they're into. Absolutely. Yeah. Discipline is such, it's such a pre, I I feel like discipline is a precursor and a foundation for magic. Like it was through the discipline of learning to lose 60 pounds in a year. Um, you know, 40 of that in like four months, it was, it was insane. Um, but yeah, it was like through, through that discipline, 
I learned how to have discipline. And then I realized, oh, discipline is a skill you need to literally create any change ever. Um, and so uh, I like to find people who have developed discipline. Um, I feel like that might be a space where I need to move into as a teacher is like figuring out how to get people to develop discipline. I think doing magic for discipline is a wonderful start, um, but you also have to want it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, yeah. And they won't do it for you. They won't do it for you. I, I, so, you know, as much as you can work with spirits, like for me to, for, for working, for keeping going, you know, Akaya is the Shem angel's great one is for keeping you going. Of course, if, if you're doing the wrong thing, it'll keep, he'll keep you doing the wrong thing. Uh, even though you should stop. So that's, that's, you've got to watch out. But if you know you're doing the right thing, great angel to have you just keep going forward systematically step by step. I highly recommend that spirit for that. Um, and um, sec I second that. I second that entirely. I actually started working with Akaya last week. So it's an incredible synchronicity every day. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we had no communicate. We've only recently no. met. No. Yes. And I did that working with my school behind the wall. So no uh -huh. one that so yeah you couldn't have found out about it any other no. it's amazing it's a, it, it, yeah kai is a is wonderful um mm -hmm. we're taking a break from shem this month and, and going into doing some celtic magic so that's gonna be fun it's nice um, to I have a, up. you have a question do you use astrology to guide which uh shem angels you work with or is it mostly based on their the traditions yeah i we, we we've i've i've led people through a variety of approaches i've led them through like golden dawn approach mm -hmm. um and of right, a couple golden dawn approaches, obviously not using the, the, the Z formula, um, like, uh, like Farrell has outlined for in his Shem grimoire here, he sets it to the Z, which is great. I love that. And, and I'll be trying some of that stuff out as soon as I have space again to do a golden dawn temple setup. But I, yeah, mostly, mostly we've been sticking. That's been part of sort of the grimoire purism element of, of my hermetic mystery school. Um, when it comes to Enochian, we stay purist pretty much. Uh, it will vary very much. Um, and with the Shem, we also stay quite purist to the grimoires. And the two reasons I like teaching Enochian and Shem magic as an introduction to grimoire magic is because they're both somewhat incomplete systems. Enochian magic was a form of Christian angel magic developed by Dean Kelly, of course, um, yeah. for, uh, you know, whatever reason you want to gather you can you know for the very treasure very treasure very treasure apocalypse who knows who knows what those what those you know what those crazy kids talked about and didn't <laughs> um yeah i mean if they, if they were part of some free love uh sort of the elizabethan hippie proto hippie community as well then that would explain a lot and it like the 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 circle of what whatever that group is called that they might have been a part of i forget circle of friends or something like that Oh yeah, the 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 Anakian angels were big on wife swapping. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's some indication that they were part of a, a bigger community around that, which would make sense. But um, you never know. Maybe the angels are just like that too. You never know. So, yeah, um, yeah. Who knows? Um, spirits are are tricky, especially with yeah, Anakian. And with especially with the Sham Angels, so working from the Amberland Grimoire, like with, yeah. through Lenine, it's also a great example. It allows me to teach students the rigorousness by which they need to analyze texts, uh, especially in grimoire magic, before they just use things willy nilly. Because the um, the Lazare Lenin uh, science of Kabbalah, the science de Kabbalah, right, that we get the Shem 
system uh, angels from in its one of its better forms and in, in it's in a fairly good form um the the it's got so many errors like it's 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 not it's it's not even that it has so many errors it's that occasionally it gets something right so you have to be extremely sharp like we just did a for um you know like like it'll have the the letters like nun yod tav as the as the name for the as the angel right and then you have the suffix you add the suffix on, which angelicalizes it, because the Shem Ham Mefresh are the Hebrew divine names. They're yeah. they're mm-hmm. they're contained within the tetragrammaton and extracted as the Bihir uh, suggests through Exodus. But then Christians, we Christianize them into into a form of Christian angel magic by adding on these suffixes, right? Either Yah mm-hmm. or El, and yeah. we develop the system out of them. But there's no one grimoire that is like like the grimoire of Shem magic, right? There's just a bunch of texts we have and they have different approaches. And then we have modern approaches that have been developed from some of those texts, like, like Eccles fabulous ritual, where you call them all at once, which I think is yeah. amazing and great. And I do hope to try it sometime. I especially love it because it would have like, li- it literally would have like driven Athanasius Kircher to like some kind of massive conniption, right? He would just, <laughs> He wouldn't be rolling over his grave. He's screaming and tearing at the earth wherever he is. Like, because like that was the opposite of his intention, right? In formatting things in that, in that wheel, you know, it was more of a polemical argument to, to prove that all the nations on earth, all 72 of them were just subsidiaries of the four letter name of God, which finds its ultimate meaning through Jesus Christ in the concealed letter Shin of Yeshua, the Verbo Marifica, right? Like, Kircher wanted to show that just everyone, you know, Jesus is the best, essentially. Like mm-hmm. Jesuit, of course, that's what he his he was yeah. was. And then Damien Eccles comes along and like, so you you, all, you got all the angels around you and call them all, and it's like, yes, he would have hated it, it would drove him nuts, and it's such an awesome. The, the ambiguity within the structure of the Shem system allows for all this creativity that you don't have other grimoire practices, right? There just isn't that much room in most grimoires. If you take the, the lesser key of Solomon or, or say the, uh, the, uh, Armadel from the, from the, from the, uh, or even the Arbitel from Almadel or Arbitel from Lemagaton, the, um, the latter, not the former. And, you take those things, right? I mean, you have to do what they're doing. Otherwise, you're not really doing it. If you don't have the four wax legs and the wax tablet, you're not doing that system, right? Exactly. You don't yeah. have yeah. We don't. We have. So you. So what the students then get the opportunity to do is see something that's incomplete and complete it through their own practice. And there's not a better way, I think, that to learn how grimoires work and, and what your relationship to them should look like than completing your own Enochian grimoire, finishing D's work for you, or finishing your own Shem grimoire, mm-hmm. finishing that work for you. And fortunately, you know, I'll have some of that. I'll have, we're working on, on Paul Rana's unfinished book on the Shem. Awesome. For people, which will be a nice blending because he loved the Golden Dawn tradition, which he was an adept in, and he is a, founded a Martinist order and incorporated a lot of that stuff in there. But he also loved traditional grimoire practices, and you can see all of that in his in his unfinished Shem book. And oh, I was very surprised when I found out that it had been sort of you know left to me to uh, you know like legally speaking to finish with. Uh, so me and Jeff will hopefully work on that and present. We're already using it in my school, of course, because why wouldn't we? Um, it's, yeah, it's, 
to try out some of his stuff, especially his incorporation of rising in the planes techniques. So those are the two systems that I think are uh, really great for students to to learn how traditional magic works while having access to beings that actually are, are quite effective and very versatile in your in your own practice right the shem angels are are wonderful you can pick from so from the ambalan or from the Lenain texts right you it's you find the time you have a 20 minute period a 20 minute period to do that on a certain day so you're not following planetary hours at all you're just mm-hmm. finding those days in those 20 minute segments. And some people I know will do the sigil right at the start of that 20 minutes and then do the, have to do the full ritual by the end of it. Some of them will continue as long as they start it within that 20 minutes. They'll let it, their experience go as long as necessary. Um, we've mm-hmm. tried both and, you know, creating the sigil, uh, during the beginning of that 20 minutes versus previously during a planetary hour and day we've tried that and we've compared all of them and of course my goal is not to find out the best one but to help people find out what the best one is for them and uh through that process and i I enjoy all of it i certainly have experienced what works best for me but sometimes also you really can't anticipate um the last two enochian operations i did uh earlier this year on two of them like i had good sigils to stand on and then but two of them i tried black and white printer paper as i've recommended many times and i've done many times in the past but i wanted to go back to that after i'd gotten used to working with what i consider to be more powerful sigils that i spent a long time working on within their planetary hours and days and putting all this time and energy and those that again comparing the effectiveness to that or the the way that that um, creates the context for the relationship with the spirit to me is very informative. Um, I'm, I'm more of a, uh, feeling person, more of a clairsentient than a clairvoyant. So I rely very much on the experience I feel around me, but it's the way I experience energy is not, other clairsentients get it. Usually when I try to explain it to clairvoyant, I don't really get it. And they, but they yeah. all, they're much better at the visual experience. And whereas me, I'll, I, I'm, if I get a clear image of a spirit, if I can command the appearance of the spirit into an image that makes sense to me, mm-hmm. then that's great. That's a big victory for me. Some of the people go on these whole novels, right? They go through, they can, they'll go through a whole novel sort of, of images and, and visuals, but they won't have the, the physiological experience that I have, which is very profound. So, you know, using a, an Enochian heptarchical seal that's on printer paper done. Uh, right mm-hmm. timing with an indelible marker you know the last two i did of those just to see one of them there was basically i would say that it didn't really work the other person who did the operation with me had a good experience but for me it was it was just something wasn't wasn't on something wasn't on something didn't click something didn't connect it was very hard i had to like almost like <laughs> almost travel what it felt like to find the being but then the next one the other one well, the presence came over me so powerfully before I knew it, I was in tears and I couldn't remember the last time I was in tears. Um, and so it was, you know, mm-hmm. preparation is important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's really interesting to hear the grimoire approaches because um, my whole approach to working with the same angels was as part of astrological magic. And this is a very interesting and like, I, it seems the more research I do, the more modern it seems. Um, it's a way of applying golden dawn formulas that are very much interested in the parts of astrology that are interested in the elements and the planets and the signs of the zodiac that you find in astrology and really focusing everything towards that and building up to a level of invoking the fixed stars um uh, beyond that and literally building up the heavens within your own aura 
And that's literally how the Shem operation was pitched to me as this way of um, invoking every five degree segment of each zodiac in order to replicate the um, signs of the heavens within your own aura and then place, use it for astrological magic, place every single planet in its actual penton, place every fixed star in its actual penton, and literally invoking your aura, a reflection of what you see in the skies at a particular astrological election in order to contain that supreme power. And I found that to be tremendously effective uh, in practice. I don't know how, uh, how, how what uh, what it's based on because I read a lot of modern, um, what's it, modern practitioners, and I go off what they go off of because they're a big famous author. I go, eh, good enough. Um, and then I, uh, was it applied? And then if I get results from it, I run with it. And so the process of using golden dawn magic to ascend through the levels of astrology, through the elements, through the planets, um, through the signs of the zodiac and the Shema Mefiraj and the fixed stars, that to me has been enormously transformative. And I've also found it to be reliably more and more powerful because you can look at something at the top of the chain, invoke everything going down. So fixed star to, uh, penton to, to sign to, whatever planets are in that same sign to whatever elemental energies are associated with that uh, sign and with that penton. And then funneling that energy down from the highest point to the lowest point to create a manifestation. I have, uh, was it a friend who is a magician who, who does magic like this? He was offered an almost six figure job that he was not qualified for out of nowhere. <laughs> Like the the level of manifestations that I've seen people working with this system are pretty unbelievable. Um, so it's it's definitely there for me in terms of in terms of results. Um, but yeah, it's really astonishing to, to me learning that there's such a completely different uh, approach to the Shem Shem Angels and uh, and Grimoire Magic. That's awesome. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of like a cheat code for yeah. the Grimoire Purists and mm -hmm. the, uh, the I don't know what you call um, modern magicians other than modern magicians or modern magic. Astrological Kabbalah. Yeah. 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 Though that's so grimoire and interwedded with the grimoires. It's very hard to tease that mm -hmm. up. Um, mm -hmm. I, in my, you know, again, from my mm -hmm. limit, I think we all have limited experience with the grimoires. <laughs> Even the people who have the most experience would agree. They probably have limit. It's just, it's uh it's just, there's so much. There's so much, um, but yeah, with the, with the, with the Shem and Enochian systems, there's this, yeah, flexibility mm -hmm. and adaptability that results from their ambiguity is, is the way I, is the way I see it. I mean, you can argue for there being only one approach, but how do you do that with a ostensibly incomplete system? It's like, oh, well, it's not incomplete. It's just, it's just, uh, mm -hmm. It's just, you know, what can you argue? It's incomplete. Yeah. I mean, Leach's argument is that if there was, you know, the, if, if, if the, if a, a piece of the system or a piece of the puzzle didn't come down to us, it wasn't really meant to be. He sort of argues that in one of his books when it comes to some of the missing seals from the, uh, sons and the daughters of light, I believe, or something like that, or some of the other seals for the heptarchial spirits. Like there's, complicated ones that we have a single example of and we have no idea how to extrapolate what the others would be but then again you know i'm sure the pies that were lined with those pages tasted very good possibly possibly yeah i just um what was it one of the books that helped me with uh understanding magic was actually the design of everyday things 
And uh, it's it's funny, but it, the the cover of it is a teapot that has a spout on the same side as the handle, so that when you pour the tea, you burn your hand. Um, it's it's intentionally bad and silly, but it just it, it's there as bad design to show you what good design looks like to help you appreciate the design of a teapot. How you just lift one side of it with the handle, and the tea just magically comes out the other side. Like it's it's well designed. Um, and when you start to understand design, like that's that to me has been the biggest success I've gotten from Magic is learning to work out the extensions of something based on the design principles already implicit in the construction of the rituals I was already practicing and using that to actually predict stuff that I later read, that I later found. Um, stuff like, uh, was it a, 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 a talisman for Shem angels that has the sign of the Zodiac in the center and it's a hexagram and it has the name of the, the angels of the, the Shem um, surrounding it and stuff like that, that is fully in line with the kind of stream of Golden Dawn um, stuff that I'd been teaching, but it, I figured it out before I'd even read it. Um, and that let me know that there was uh, a coherency to the design that could be applied and projected forward. Um, you know, maybe there was some flexibility and people would do it in different ways, but there was a range of possibilities within the system that um, was uh, implied by what was already there. And so I think you can make arguments for stuff that is more internally coherent with the original material versus less internally coherent with the material. I think we have more to work with than just divine revelation. Yes. You mean divine, like you mean like UPG divine revelation? Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, it, it's all, it's all somebody's UPG at this point, at some point. So I, I reject that term, out of hand, <laughs> but I'll, I'll use it when I feel it might help. <laughs> yeah. So, I would say like the revelation in, in, in scriptural or grimoire tradition is divine revelation, right? You know, but you're talking like, you know, just because you think that you, just because you feel inspired that something should be this way, doesn't mean you should discount all the, all the pages of the grimoires or all the lessons or words of other, you know, past magicians. Well, I mean, you, you can, that's what Austin Osman Spare did and Karis Magic has been tremendously successful. So <laughs> here we go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here's my argument. Chaos magic, he didn't learn that from nowhere. He learned what he was doing, what people call chaos magic. That methodology is the methodology that is used by adepts in the inner order. And if you've done training in the vault and done a lot of the exercises and practices that a lot of adepts and a lot of Golden Dawn orders do, and I know this because I've talked to them from across orders, and this is the kind of stuff that would sort be sort of under secrecy. But when you mm -hmm. talk another adept from another tradition long enough, you start to get an idea of some of the things they do in their daily life. Mm -hmm. And you're like, so you're doing this? And they're like, yeah, right? And you're like, huh, mm -hmm. that sounds a lot like chaos magic, but you're doing it mm -hmm. from this inner, inner vault perspective, right? Mm -hmm. To me, in my opinion, that's where he got that from. He got that methodology from working magically with the other adepts in the Golden Dawn where he was initiated. And then presented it in his own in his own unique way to the world and then years and then, then that's where that's that's what i think the seed of chaos magic came from i think oh. and i because i can tell you this for a fact if you mm. do a lot of if you go up through a magical golden dawn order into the inner order and do a lot of high level adept work pretty much no matter what order you're in you're going to be like this looks a lot like chaos magic in a way so that's wow. where it, my opinion. That's my argument, and I'm happy to argue with anyone because I, I think I'm right. <laughs> no, I think that's fantastic. 
Um, I, I knew that, uh, was it, uh, chaos magic emerged from the golden dawn tradition. So that actually lines up everything with, uh, with what I've learned. So. Yeah. I, the argument, yeah, I presented my case. Um, yeah, but I think that's, uh, also speaks to the power of like, uh, what was it? Adaptability, taking one thing from this long, rich tradition and saying like, let's make a whole tradition that's just that one thing that's literally making something sub- like this is what i feel like subtracting is as creative as adding and that's something that people don't uh, necessarily acknowledge or um agree with all the time just because i mean part of it i think is that we have a natural tendency to want to accumulate natural aversion to letting go um but i feel like a lot of magical traditions survive by actually cutting out stuff that was really considered core to it at one point and then at a certain point, people say, like, maybe that doesn't apply to me. I don't find that useful anymore. And the simplicity and versatility of chaos magic has really, like, uh, caused it to explode in pop, um, public popularity um, in a way that Golden Dawn, uh, traditional Golden Dawn magic hasn't yet. So, Right. So my my theory is it's because, like, you know, yeah, you, you're just, you're taking the cream out of the cookie. <laughs> Well, I mean, they they sell tubs of frosting. Like some people want that want that experience. So, no, that you that's that's more on point. That's like <laughs> to what I'm actually saying, right? Um, totally. That's the us magicians. They're sitting there, and you know, and the rest of us are like trying to use the needle to like carve designs into the cookie without breaking it. Um, <laughs> but there is this massive shift. Uh huh in mentality between the outer and inner order in the golden dawn. And it's because we work in two different temples. Like look at the way our altars change. Look at the, look at what we can do in one temple, but can't do in the other and how we work with forces in each and how we, you know, I don't want to say too much because it really is something, a journey people should experience going through these traditions Mm -hmm. themselves. And I don't want to spoil any of it, but it's, it's there and it's a beautiful journey. And, uh, you can, you can take pieces apart. I mean, I love the fact that the Golden Dawn tradition, well, pretty much universally has decided, yeah, mm-hmm. do whatever you want with our stuff. And it's, we're, yeah. Let's take it as one big compliment. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you might not, it might not, the thing that you're doing might not mean the same as it means to someone who's right. gone to a certain ceremony or worked with a certain group, but that's going to be different amongst groups anyway, even amongst. Yeah even within the same order sometimes that stuff would be radically different like the vibe of magicians at our temple and i can only speak about my own experience of course in this regard so yeah. i don't mind too much and i acknowledge it's limited to my you know hermeneutic horizon but at temple tahuti it was very tahushin it was very energetic loud rigorous um powerful but like very sulfury at the same time you know it had this sort of airy fire as well but it was also it had and and the but the heart was sort of expressed in a in a logos kind of way like this all, all powerful thing and the the actions were were strong and dramatic where he went down in that manifested even in the way our our initiates did their ritual work so like everyone you know every initiate pretty much did the rituals the same way of course because otherwise you can't do group work but if you watched you know, t- members of Temple Tehuti versus members of Temple of Isis and the way where the, everything was more slow and mellow there. Everyone was like, oh, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the symbols before you represent, and it's just, it, it was a watery, icy and sort of loving, com- very compassionate current. The compassion wasn't so much there with Thoth. Um, that's for sure. There was like a bit more like, it's like 
tell me, great Tahuti, what do I need to do? I say, hey, you motherfucker, you know exactly what you need to do. Why aren't you doing it anymore? You wouldn't get that stuff from Icy. You'd get like, well, now, my dear, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard John Michael McGreer com, uh, compare group magic to music, and I found that to be incredibly apt, like the degree to which people need to be in sync, need to be creating a vibe together, and the degree to which, like, hey, you want to listen to music? Like <laughs> that is that is a big proposition for all of the different experiences it can entail. And so even if you're doing the same ritual, um, the the kind of emotion that people bring to it and the kind of vibe that they create with each other and, and, and uh, through that uh, collective state um, can have be so totally different the same way that different kinds of music can be totally different, I think. Well, yeah, yeah. a great uh, analogy for it, for sure. Totally. Yeah. It's like having having a mellow sixty song and then like a heavy metal cover of it, like <laughs> <laughs> totally different vibes. So oh, vice versa, you see that a yeah. lot. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm sure I pissed off some chaos people or or whatever, but that's okay. They they actually can handle. They don't mind. I'm sure they're you know. Plus the the idea that they've they they like the idea that they've thrown out the the uh, the structures. And uh, just gone straight for the sap, you know, sucked all the the syrup out of the trees. And, yeah, it doesn't really have much of a pathway for progress. Yeah, I mean, not, not traditionally. I think if you, um, what was it, if you work on self-development and you have some kind of scheme for dividing the self, like that's why... I think even though spiritual alchemy is kind of a later uh, addition, the idea of solvate coagula as a self-improvement theurgic process, I mean, you need to be able to break yourself down into individual pieces and perfect these individual pieces um, to the extent that you can um, before bringing it all back together um, is really, really key. So you need some kind of divisions of the self scheme in order to be able to use chaos magic. But I think once you have that, overarching philosophy then there's a potential there i just don't know anybody who does that simply because if they know if they want to do that there's so many systems of theurgy that have already broken it down that have already given you specific rituals and how to do everything um that you can do instead so yeah yeah i mean chaos magic in many ways is a is is a is is a, a sort of a unifying factor between the operative things within magic and the sort of you know super sensible the psychical experience mm. things as well I, what i mean is you know you can you can you can tap into forces directly without mediation right mm. and chaos magic gives you a structure to do that but by creating the mediation while you're doing it, if that makes sense. So the media, the, the, the medium emerges from the interaction in a way, right? You can experience a spirit. Like, you know, people would say it's like, if you just call a spirit mm -hmm. and you experience a spirit and you communicate with the spirit and then it gives you a sigil, right? A lot of people wouldn't think of that as a lot of people would think of that as very chaos magic in your approach because you've, mm -hmm. It's calling to something or going out into nature and experiencing something that's there. I would call, I would look at it as more of a form of, of a naturalistic metaphysic simply being applied to basic goetia or, you know, mm -hmm. the word go as. But, yeah. in, but a lot of would, would 
interpret that as form of chaos magic, right? Just going directly to the thing and then creating the structure from the relationship you have with the thing. And then yeah. use as the as the locus and the, the means of, of furthering that relationship. I think yeah. there's a wonderful book called The World We Used to Live In that was an account of uh that's an account of uh Native American uh spiritual experiences and essentially magic. Um but uh you know these the shamanistic traditions and it's so interesting how they all evolved through personal relationships with spirits. Like there'd be spirits that were known to individual tribes and they would give out uh specific healing powers. And then some people would get the same healing powers and other people would get totally different healing powers. But the idea that the entire structure was provided by the spirit, you talk to the spirit, the spirit gave you the worldview and the structure and the path of advancement and everything else. And a lot of times it was very serious. Like you'd have these really difficult trials that you'd use to initiate yourself, change yourself. Um, so it was a really intense form of spiritual practice, but it was still very highly individualistic. There wasn't some overarching system that you have with like golden dawn magic where there's this whole scheme of the uh universe implied by the structure um it was all very much you have a spirit and your relationships with your spirit determine what your power is what you can do what kind of change you can create in the world and how everything works um and it, it's interesting the degree to which we're, we're we're finding another kind of shamanism with uh with uh chaos magic which is something that uh austin osmond's very explicitly um actually wait was it that book it was, I think it was Label Null and Psychonaut was the one that published like this genealogy of spirituality that put shamanism at the top. Um, so it really uh, underscores the idea that they thought they were going back to this original uh, relationship of spirituality, uh, which if you, depending on how you do chaos magic, could certainly point that way if you're interested in working with uh, spirits to develop more symbols and more more powers and more uh, things and just in a way that's very much your own world. It's you and the spirit and figuring everything else out. It's very um, it's very personal. Um, it, to me, it would be overly isolating, but I can see how that might work for some people. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's such a, a description of of a huge chunk of uh, of the the you know rosicrucian magic of the golden dawn inner order right like we have the z docs and the z formulas and all of that sorry Z. which which one do you guys say i like i'm trying to say the one america you guys say Z, or do you say z we say z yeah z. we say Z. um right mm -hmm. and of course d and back in elizabethan times they said zode <laughs> so, right? zode excellent mm -hmm. zode is in the enochian yeah yeah mm -hmm. Zed and z anyway um but you know when you yeah so there's the structured form of 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 that kind of rosicrucian magic mm -hmm. and zid docs right delivered by um batter mm -hmm. lux a tenebris which is of course a was a mathers and westcott's code name for the archangel raphael of course people misunderstood misconstrued that and thought they were actually talking about a physical person and that they believed that there was a physical secret chief walking around teaching them stuff from the germans but actually we know now that that was just a code name that mathers and westcott used to refer to their communications with the archangel raphael so it makes sense it's not surprise it's, it's very interesting that raphael had so much to play in the development of the higher teachings in the in the golden dawn rosicrucian order as well as in enochian magic and there's a healing component of both those systems right you really yeah. 
Nokiana, that there's this revelatory apocalypsis, this unveiling of the meaning of what revelation is. And of course, today people have run wild with the apocalypse because they all are too ignorant of actual Christian theology to have a real clear understanding of what that is. But it's very mm-hmm. simple. It's the revelation, of course, of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's like we yeah. thought god and now we know for sure that's the that's the apocalypsis and that's there's only one revelation in the book of revelation right there's not just one and so enochian has this tikkun olam kind of experience Mm -hmm. of revelation reformation that occurs throughout that system of magic and so i love the to me that speaks highly of it being gifted in large part by the influence of the archangel raphael who's the healer of god and then again Mm -hmm. he's that in the Golden Dawn with the delivery of the a lot of the teachings around the vault. And mm-hmm. the idea there, is, again, is a unification, rectification of the above and the below, and then all seven sides, all planet, seven planetary directions and influences of the, of the you know, astral bodies, all mm-hmm. present all at once, all the time. Yeah. And yeah. There. And there's a reason we never perform banishings in there. Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I just to invoke it. Yeah. Well, it's difficult for me to evaluate, uh, traditions just because everything I learned was so modern. Um, that to me, it's just, I'll try it and it works or it doesn't work. And if it works for me, great. And if the magic that I know is able to accomplish what I need to accomplish, there may be other magic out there that's more powerful. I don't necessarily need it if the magic that I'm using right now is doing everything that I need to do. Um, and it's uh it's funny because I get that perspective a lot because I have a lot of new people practicing magic who are get into it from chaos magic or uh learning, you know, golden dawn style magic from modern books um that aren't aren't steeped in the tradition of the original orders. And uh a lot of people are skeptical of the grimoires and other things, especially like the Greek magical papyri, where it's like I'm supposed to read all of these texts and then something magical happens. Like they don't they don't get where the magic is in any of it. Um and, and uh it's difficult. The grimoires can be very difficult to penetrate. Um so a lot of a lot of modern practitioners are more results based. Like you can make theological arguments for why something is um authentic or why it aligns with something in scripture. Um, or why it promotes a, a certain positive worldview. Um, but yeah, I think there's, I think the only thing that can unite, um, uh, magicians, I think we're going to be arguing over which books are the good books forever. Um, but I think the only thing that can unite us is, you know, results. Like if you do this magic, what happens? What can you actually change in your life? Um, what kind of results did you specifically experience? Like if we can share these things, then I think there can be a lot of value. And I think a lot of the things that are traditional are traditional for a reason. And I learned this the hard way, trying to freewheel my, my way through some of the golden dawn rituals and making radical changes and realizing, Oh, it doesn't work anymore. It works bad. Like, <laughs> and, uh, uh, through trial and error, figuring out like how that there is an internal logic to the way a lot of this stuff is, is structured. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, humility that comes with that, where you can have a tradition that you're from, that's very well respected. And then you're interacting with somebody who has literally zero respect for it. (laughs) And the only possible common ground that you can have between you is what you're actually using the music, the magic for in your daily lives, like as a person. And if you can find something that they would find useful, then you'll get their attention. If you say that it's this old or it has this other features going for it, a lot of people just aren't necessarily going to be paying attention. Yeah. 
sort of makes me think of the weird thing I see going on in the, the Facebook communities of self-initiates who are like, you know, I dipped my head in there, but then ran screaming for the hills. Cause like I encounter people being things like, how dare you mention Jesus? There's no Jesus or Christian influence in the golden dawn. If you think there's. <laughs> oh, wow. Die you fucking Christian. I'm like, Whoa, Whoa. Okay. So why are you studying the golden dawn? They're like, because it's pagan. And it, like, they just go off and I'll say all this nonsense. And then, then a few other like experts chip in and they're like, here's a list of all places. Jesus plays a role. Uh, and it's like, you know, pretty huge. Uh, it's not the only influence. Like there's, you know, there's mm -hmm. a Cyrus, there's all these different gods and spirits that play major oh. roles. And Zaleski has done a good job identifying and talking about what they are in his work, of course, because, you know, he has a sort of a, a healthy point of view, I think, of, of, of the tradition, um, obviously, having done it so long. Um, that's less uh, less dogmatic than some new people who are trying to remake it in their own image without learning what it is first. And that's mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it's unfortunate you see that the uh, abuse of the traditions as we go along as well. Like this, uh, they're going to be taken up by new people who just decide they don't like what they are and or or want to be free from uh, having being part of a community in which there's people that know more than them. Right. So that's another problem you get with people who get into magic is they want to do something where there's, where they can be the biggest expert in the world. And of course, when you have a traditions or a, or a form of practice that pri prioritizes subjective experience, you know, <laughs> perfect, perfect little, uh, you know, smorgasbord there to form your own form to, to turn yourself into some sort of cult leader guru type. And I think that we, we're going to, we're always going to, of course, have to deal with people like that. Fortunately, I think we don't have to worry too much about that because the system seems to deal well with those people and spits them out in, in good time. Um, you know, they also spirits will tend to tend to deal with you over time. If you, uh, if you have those sort of really toxic, Mentalities towards this, yeah, God, I'd say, you know, God and, and, and your fellow man and women, like, you know, if you, if you're going in with that yeah. work of like, that's just with so much of, you know, what's the, what, you know, so much dross that needs to be burned out of you again, it's just, and you know, everyone talks about the fact that you need to get over that stuff. If you're going to work in Western magic, you're going to have to get over, um, the history of the West. It's, it's just a part of it. Otherwise, maybe you're better off running to Eastern practices. Honestly, if you have yeah. your pathos is so developed that you can't, um, you know, can't enjoy, uh, reading about, the Judeo-Christian development of Western culture and spirituality. Like, you know, you're never going to fully repaganize it um, as much as you might try. Like, I love that this year has been a, two studies primarily for me. Tomberg, who's all about Christianizing Hermeti Hermetica and yeah. um, in Hermetic hermet Hermetism um, mm -hmm. in Hermeticism. And then the other on the other side, I'm studying a lot of, uh, you know, Jake Stratton Kent, and he's all about... Yeah. You know, Christianizing Hermetica and and finding its pagan roots and origins again. So it's it's a it's a double action that's quite I think necessary and healthy. You need that like paradox is so crucial. Really, mm -hmm. don't you think paradox in itself? Like, isn't there a paradox even within the number one? 
Yeah. Well, I think to me, it's, it's different just because as a philosopher, I try to stamp out paradox wherever I see it. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm literally trying to find if the, if the fundamental unit of reality is a paradox. Oh, I don't feel, I mean, I, I don't think it's any more of a paradox than your own body. The fact that you are one being made out of all of these different parts and organs and cells and everything else. Um, I just feel that that's the, that's the revelation of the one that this is this we're in the body of God. Like that's basically the, the, the philosophical implication of it. It's not so much a paradox as it is a really disturbing reality um, that we're all part of a single individual entity that is constantly at war with itself and doesn't know how to live with itself. And that's, you know, HP uh, Lovecraft called it as a thought and really ran for it for a while. Um, like the, the horror of uh, what the one really is. But to me, it's not so much a paradox as it is something disturbing and uh, their mysticism sometimes provides that veil where it's not even supposed to be mystical. It's just supposed to, you know, not freak people out until they get to a point where they can really accept um, what it means for everything to be one and all of the disturbing implications of that and how much, how much impetus is on us to really be better, <laughs> like not be so much in conflict with everything else because then we're ultimately just harming ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've only heard I've heard scientists talk about how one contains this sort of paradoxical. I know I wish I you know I wish I had more lifetimes to live and I could do it all. Oh yeah, the one yeah the one many paradox is really big in uh, in philosophy, but uh, I always took the view that totality is kind of the third balancing point. Like if you if you think of one and many as a dualism, like there is no solution because dualisms by definition don't have any solution. Like they need they need two sides in order to exist. This is why you have um, what was it? These really dualistic, um, uh, movements that have, you know, witch hunts or whatever else and like have to invent enemies. Cause after they defeat their enemies, they lose all the identity if they don't come up with more enemies. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's the trap of dualism. And if you think of one many as a dualism, like there is no solution. Uh, but if you think of it as uh, a trinity, where you have one many in a totality that incorporates both of these aspects, then then it makes sense uh, as far as I'm concerned. So it, it, to me, it's more a matter of how you approach it rather than it being like irreconcilable in itself. But that's um, I like philosophy. So that's how I do it. Well, you'll like the, the, the druidic ternary thinking that that is talked about by uh, Dr. Edwards in his Eric Graham Howe book, Druid in Psychologist Clothing. Right? Oh, the, yeah. Mm -hmm. This this third form of thinking is very interesting in the way he characterizes it. And I think he attacks that in the same series, uh, in the same, in a similar way in his series on being and non-being that he's got the third installment of coming out. Right. Yeah. I'm so I'll be talking to him soon after the longest prep I've ever done for a podcast ever. ever. Um, uh, right. You know, like 80 hours of reading his book and then a lot of Eric Graham Howe's works and the Druid of Harley street. And so look forward to having that conversation. But I think that, um, you know, that, that I, the structure of, of, of how we think, right. And the interaction with how we experience reality, the idea that that says more about reality than an objective static existence that doesn't actually exist, right. There isn't <laughs> objective reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that we can, this is, that's the basic problem with light, right. <laughs> That when it comes down to so like light, what's reality? A lot of a lot of her her hermeticists, hermeticists or hermeticists, well, oh, light. Mm -hmm. it's light. We'll say it's light or noose, right? And if you want to mind, mm -hmm. 
sure. But like the idea of light, especially, um, and what is light? It's, 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 it's problematic. Well, I, no, I, well, I think, um, I think light was the way that idealists in the hermetic tradition talked about awareness because the idea that we each have an individual awareness, which is literally the universe. Like you only are experiencing the universe because your awareness casts out from inside of your body to the outer rings of Saturn to some grocery store down the street. And I can just mention those things and your awareness goes to all these different places. And so it's, it's constitutive of the universe of your experience and you're constantly casting this awareness out and the way that the awareness forms when it is cast out, when you come back, it comes back to you is how you experience anything. Um, and the idea that that is the fundamental, um, substructure of reality, that matter is just the product of that process rather than being fundamental. Like that, that idealism that goes all the way back to Plato, um, is really alive in the hermetic tradition from what I've seen. And it's really interesting how it uses the idea of light, um, to explain things like the planets, that the planets are d these different kinds of lights, stellar rays, um, and that they have an awareness to them, an interiority that structures reality the same way that our own awareness structures reality, but in a much more profound cosmic sense. And so we can draw upon um, and merge with their state of consciousness, their awareness to start to take on and express some of their powers to reshape our own reality in a similar fashion. So that's how I would interpret light. And that's how I read some of the, uh, the older, uh, older texts like El Kindi Stellar Rays, uh, to interpret it in like a, to reconcile it with the, um, Neoplatonist, uh, uh, philosophy that I find implicit in a lot of, uh, Golden on Magic. Yeah. Would I like reading, uh, the El Kindi? Mm hmm. Huh? The, the El Kindi text. Al Kindi, um, I don't know if you'd like the uh, the style of it, but it's really uh, fascinating. I, I find that the the way that he talks about light, uh, if you think of it in terms of consciousness, is really elucidating. It, it, uh, it really, I feel like it's really ahead of its time in a way where uh, that's been a foundational text for me for understanding magic overall. Um, just because it talks about number and and, and light and awareness, that I'm like, oh, these are shapes of consciousness, categories of consciousness. And then I'm able to apply that think the same thinking to Golden Dawn Magic to sort of break it down using that criteria. And then all of a sudden I can get a lot more value out of its structure. So Yeah, I wanted to read it as soon as Black Letter Press uh, dropped it. And I, I might grab it during the Anathema publishing sale this weekend. Who knows? We'll see. Um there's so many things I want, but you also have <laughs> time to read, you know? Yeah, totally. I made myself a deal that I won't watch any recorded media until I read at least one chapter of a book. Um and that's really helped me with actually finishing my books these days. You want you wanna see a picture? You wanna see a picture? Oh, sure. oh nice. That's a talisman. Mine. Um mm-hmm. So I'm just going to show you a, a Sasha Chato print from this thing that I got when it came up. Cause yeah, I've really enjoyed my talking with her in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so a little shout out to Sasha, Dr. Chato and her amazing work. Here we go. Wonderful. It's for my patrons who get the full video on Patreon or <laughs> nice. Crossroads. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Now this one been shown, of course, but on it's this one you can see on the ads. Oh wow! 
the dove descending. It's beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, you know, it's, it's a, I, I'm always cautious. I always like to caution people about not getting too many texts because you need to, yeah, you do. And I hope people appreciate that we've spent this podcast mostly talking about our experiences as well. I hope people got what they asked for to have two, two guys just talking mostly about their experiences. Some people might not even, who knows if some people might not like that. I don't know, but it's, it's great talking about experiences. I don't know if we talked about them in the right way, but uh, we'll see. Uh, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of the point is that I don't like having, read so much philosophy, I can't help but philosophize and try to reconcile everything that I've experienced in some metaphysical way. So it's like, to me, the structure and the direct experience are two sides of the same coin. Like the the structure dictates to me what the quality of the experience is. If I didn't have the structure, I'd just be going, what was that? And then I wouldn't talk about it anymore because I wouldn't even be able to make sense of it. And so it's this left and right, it's this one foot and uh, this two-step process where the um, structure through which I understand magic informs the way that I have experiences. And then the experiences that I have recontextualize a lot of what I think uh, my structure of magic was. And so it's this continually march forward where my, my understanding of magic is constantly evolving with new experiences that I have. Um, and I think that's, I mean, it was probably natural. So. Yeah. It's, it's the hermeneutic circle and, and Hans Georg Gadamer talks about this in truth and method when he refers to JJ Rambach's philosophical understanding of, uh, comprehendi, intelligendi, and, and interpretendi being a tripartite but unified event. That's a singular action that occurs, comprehension and, and understanding and then interpretation, that these things aren't separate. Um, and from there, Gadamer uh, writes his truth and method, his massive opus. And uh, I really do think he uh, is the sort of the savior of Heidegger, for me, anyway. I also think people need to read more Paul Ricoeur as a, as a good philosopher, who's a, who's a fun one to read. You know, st- get your head out, get people, get people's heads out of like too much Nietzsche and Heidegger and, and Hegel. And, and that, that's all fun stuff, of course, you know, but uh, it's like, I think you, you have more fun reading Gadamer and Ricoeur and Goethe, honestly. Um, you know, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. I mean, I love my naturalists. Um, with the Hermetis, with the view of the Hermetica, that's changed since Hanegraaff's recent book, Hermetic Spirituality. Did you get to participate in the the book study of that in Angela's symposium? No, no, I haven't gotten into Hanegraaff's work yet. Definitely want to. Because I know you guys did a book study in the symposium. And that's where we met, for those who don't know. I met you in in Angela's symposium. It was great, yeah. I finally got up at 8 a.m. to attend one of those early lectures. And so glad I did, because getting to interact with you and like, James Vitali and the other other cool cats there. And of course, some people knew who I was, which terrifies me because sometimes, you know, people, we don't say nice things to each other. And then, you know, it's sad. It happens. Aww. You know, well, you cross paths with people on Facebook sometimes. It's just like, you know, you're just sort of humdrumming along and someone's like, bumps you and you're like, what What the fuck do you want? And they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> if it was real life, things would have probably gone a bit smoother. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Tonality so important. So you don't haven't really looked at the uh, the new Hanegraaff study, eh? Um, I look forward um, to um, the symposium that Angela did. Everyone should join Doctor Puka's Angela's symposium, of course, and support her work, especially after like she got her whole channel like fucking hacked and lost. So oh yeah, no, that's tragic, so brutal and nasty. And mm-hmm. clearly, she's her channel's being suppressed. 
um, not 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 to the extent that of full shadow banning, but I mean, if she was forced to remove the Dean Radin interview from the public view, like some pressure, yeah, mm-hmm. fucked up shit, in my opinion. Pardon my expression, everybody, but like mm-hmm. that's just it's that's that's evil beyond words. And I feel like the fact that that we live in a reality in a world a society that it doesn't get outraged by that and change it right away is one of the most disgusting things I can imagine. It's it makes me physically ill. Oh, you know, yeah, that's like someone should be sounding the sirens and being like, how dare you say that these people talking about Nephilims being the true origin of of the demons in Atlantis get pumped up the algorithm and then an interview with scientists doing studies in labs that are reproducible yet universally relegated to suit by the mainstream that's suppressed but the the demon nephilim right-wing christian nonsense is like held up on a pedestal to some zionist nightmare you know, like, because that's what a lot of these Christian right wingers are. They want to build Zion. They want to build the mark of the beast, not because they believe that will bring about the second coming. Like, so, like oh second, no, like Christian accelerationism—that's the thing. Actually, believes he wants to do the things because he believes if he builds Revelation, like that that mythos in the Book of Revelation, that it will trigger the second coming. That's what these nut jobs actually are pushing for, and we know that because they actually like say so you can check out the, what their churches are preaching what their their, their priests are their, their preachers are saying and that's actually what they think they want these wars they want the these marks of the beast because they think it will trigger the end times and then they get to get raptured raptured which isn't even in the book of revelation yeah yeah well i feel like that's one of the traps of social media is to keep you as obsessed with possible about the choices of other people rather than your own choices um like the more that you focus on your own life and what you're doing i feel like when you focus on what other people should be doing with their lives you're giving your power away and giving your attention and vitality away and the more you can redirect to okay what what do i want to do in response and a lot of times there's nothing you can do in response. Um, but if you can think about, okay, what's the opposite of what they're doing? How can I can start to create that like in myself and in my world um, to the greatest extent possible? If you can use that as motivation, then I find that uh, anything can ultimately be be a positive. This is something we talked about before, but the relationship between severity and mercy, uh, how there's two these two sides to Hermetic Kabbalah, and we always want to, the mercy of all the good experiences. We don't want the severity of the punishments and the challenging experiences. But a part of that, a big part of that middle path is starting to realize like severity has a purpose. And so if stuff is happening in the world that you don't like, that's because you're being pressured to adapt and change internally in some way. That's my my take on it. And I want to figure out like how I need to change to be the solution um, to whatever problem that I'm seeing. And then the more that I do that, the more I just have a lot more love and acceptance for the world because I feel that it's always teaching me in some ways, even if it's teaching me harshly at times. Yeah. I have a few more questions I'd love to ask you on this. Of course. You have, uh, we were, I think we're almost over three hours, which is awesome. I always love to go. <laughs> no, why not? I'm, can, uh, or should we do a little quick, quick bathroom break and can't go and, uh, and. Yeah, let me get some water. That sounds good. Let's keep going. Yeah. Yeah, of course. The pause and then we'll uh, continue on for a bit more epicness. And um, there we go. Cool. All right, the pee break is over. So I, I was curious to ask you about your um, sort of psychic proclivities. What's 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 the experience like for you? Again, in the ethos of us, us, us being men, sharing what we actually 
think, but more importantly, feel. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, clairsentience, this is the, I'm, I'm the same way. And it's so weird because it's just like, things have like a texture and a grain to them and a con consistency, a viscosity. It's, it's just a weird thing, but that's what I feel is like the viscosity of energy. If something feels like it's flowing easily, if it feels really dense and heavy and like molasses, um, then I can feel like the consistency of different energies. And I mean, this is the most um, profound thing to me, but since uh, performing the uh, Akephalos ritual, it's like I can just lift up inside my own body and connect to this divine state of bliss and then come back down and then be in a more mundane consciousness. And it's as easy as sitting up and sitting down, but it's something that I'm just doing with my consciousness in a clear sentient way. I'm just reaching this higher state and feeling that and then going to this lower state and feeling this. And so I, I've experienced the energy in my body primarily, um, but that also extends to the surroundings, the etheric energy of the room that I'm in. Um, and of course that changes wildly depending on what I'm invoking. Um, and so when I feel the the energy of a spirit coming through, I visualize it, of course. But the biggest impact uh, to me is feeling this presence. It's like somebody, the feeling of somebody standing there when nobody's standing there. Um, and then um, feeling that the same way that I feel my own internal body. Um, and that's the, the weirdest thing for me is the um, degree to which the internality of magic, uh, the the extent that when I'm connecting with something psychically, it feels like it's inside me. Um, this is why you use the term inner planes a lot of times to talk about these things because they're all inside consciousness. And so I feel like it's, I feel like there's something on top of me. Um, when I feel a spirit in the room or something, even though I know the difference, it's like the medium, but the space between me and the spirit has become part of me. Uh, and then everything taking place in that uh, space, I feel the texture of it. Um, yeah, the same way as I feel the texture of my clothing right now. Have you ever done much as a clairsentient, much, many exercises uh, with with getting a, a sense of how different colors feel? Have you used color cards or, you know, energy? Oh, so I don't. I tend to, um, I tend to assign colors rather than, uh, rather than be receptive with colors because color is such an important part of the Golden Dawn uh, magic system as I've learned it, which is a fascinating to me is looking at like, Planet, uh, the elements, uh, how originally it was black for earth. And so you have the primary colors of uh, red, blue, um, red, blue, and yellow. And then you get into the, uh, the Sephiroth, the tree of life. You have primary colors, secondary colors, and then black, white, and, and gray. Um, and you have this other system of colors. And then in the Zodiac, you have tertiary colors. And so the idea that color has different significances at different levels of magic, but they're all incredibly specific. Um, is a big part of working, that could be working with the magic for me. So I tend to use color as a tool for building other significations of consciousness. I decide what the colors mean, and then I use them as a, a handle to grab onto these angels, these other forces, these uh, streams of consciousness, to start to work with them and to start to develop more and more my understanding of them. Um, both in terms of the individual spirit that I'm working it working with, and the that's force uh, in more general in more general sense. Um, yeah, so if you're invoking working with Saturn, um, you may feel work with Zafkiel, you may work with Cassiel, you may work with um, Aratron, and the idea that um, you know these different spirits all personify that energy in a different way, but there's also an energy behind all of that and i associate with the color black um so that black energy is like the the nexus point for all of these spirits that are associated with this one 
energy um, of this one planet. And so that's how I work with color primarily is not trying to receive the meanings of color, but actually using color to receive the meanings of everything else. I like that. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, But this is what I love about uh, what was it? Golden Dawn magic is that colors always mean something. (laughs) So like uh, when I'm choosing my wardrobe, I'm thinking like what, what spheres am I invoking or what uh, signs of Zodiac am I invoking with this outfit? So, yeah. We, We don't believe that colors represent forces. We believe that colors are forces. (laughs) Idea. Um, and I like that because it's very much akin to what I grew up with in Waldorf school, uh, Rudolf mm-hmm. Steiner teachings, learning about colors. Like in grade one, uh, the first painting class you have in grade one is, I believe it's uh, yellow. And uh, so you, you get your water paint and you know, dip your brush in a big, thick brush in the water. And you've got your really high quality watercolor paper there because everything's very, they always use very high quality stuff in Waldorf school, like the pencil crayons alone cost an arm and a leg. Um, though not compared to a month's tuition of $750. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, yet, yeah, yet the teachers still don't make anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then you just paint yellow over the whole thing. And then the wow. next class, you do the same with blue. And then the next class, you do the same with red. And then guess what you do after that? Mm-hmm. Take yellow and then either blue or red both on half and what happens is they get together (gasps) secondary colors. Yeah. And you just keep going with that. And that mentality goes all the way up through grade school and even sort of, and then, you know, corollary to that, you know, next lesson, you go out to the roundhouse and you're doing your rhythm and you're dancing those colors and then using zodiacal forms and planetary, you know, like, you know, like Mercury is going up like that. And like, you know, nice. All that beautiful eurythmy stuff, what I call weightlifting for the aura. And so you're yeah. in all these things in so many different ways. And then there's the naturalism of being out in nature and integrating that understanding with physical nature and like understanding what is a rock and what is a tree and what are these, what are plants? What, how, what's growing on? It's amazing the, the, the system of education that it, it really was, I think, a salvific creation for the world along with bio bio biodynamic farming. I really think Steiner yes. was a really excellent prophet when it came to certain things. And prophecy is one of the few things I deeply believe in only because I've experienced it on a shocking level. Otherwise I'd probably be much more, um, you know, whatever about it, you know, until you experience it, of course. And then you're like, Oh, you can really prophesy stuff. You really can. Um, and, you know, and I see, I saw that play out because of course, the first time I, I heard prophecies given as an adept in the inner order, I was, uh, you know, I had, I had as much skeptical as was skepticism as was absolutely appropriate, not necessarily in the moment, though it's hard to avoid entirely in the moment mm-hmm. of perception of the prophecy with a group of people. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought to, and for years it was, it was, uh, it was something in my mind that was counting against the tradition and counting against my experiences. It was, it was proof to the negative of what I was a part of, like proof that, that there was a you know bad side to it. Yeah. Opsies came true on a, mm. right. And it was like, 
I don't know what to do with that. I've talked about them lots of other times on the podcast. It's like, it's like, so yeah, I just, I believe that's real now. I believe that, you know, and it makes sense when you think about how dreams work and you dream things that are happening in the future. I've had entire dreams that cover an entire part of my life that hasn't happened that I'm sure will never happen. Then 20 years later, host oh, shit, I'm in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of these dreams I was having, you know, as a, as a, have you had those experiences? Oh my gosh. Uh, so one of the, Look at us talking experiences. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, more talk about experiences. Um, so one of the things that makes me believe the Holy Garden Angel is a real phenomenon is looking back at miraculous experiences that I had when I was an atheist. And I just, I still had um, miraculous experiences. I just discounted them as temporary insanity or like some other rationalization. But it was explicitly a rationalization. It didn't stand up to scrutiny. It was just there for me to dismiss what had happened. Um, but, uh, yeah, experiences where I was in a car crash that was predicted by a dream where I had the dream of being in a car and it going, crashing and going over the edge and into a forest and, uh, landing and surviving, but being really beat up, had a very, very similar experience, uh, where driving back from a concert, uh, car crashed, um, this, uh, was a tractor trailer just, jammed itself into the highway. Everybody had to make space for it. Everyone had a space to go to except for us. Bounced off the left guardrail, spun off across four lanes of traffic, was about to go over a ledge into a forest. As this was happening, um, I popped out of my body. I heard, like, as soon as the, 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 uh, was it the airbag pop, totally different state of consciousness, popped out of my body. I heard, be, be not afraid. Like the, the angel speaking to me. And then I'm like, what's going on? And then I, I turned not my head, but my consciousness. I was able to see sably outside of my body, four lanes of traffic coming, coming, oncoming towards us and realizing that none of those cars were going to hit us and immediately feeling a sense of complete calm and safety as I was spinning off, spinning out across four lanes of traffic. Um, and then getting, Instead of going into the forest, I actually managed to catch the cables just enough to where the car swerved into the cable and was left dangling off the side of the cliff rather than dropping, you know, the, the uh, 20, 30 feet down to the forest blow. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that was my experience of, of an angel before, uh, before any communion with the angel. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've been warned a few times mm -hmm. to do things or leave places to avoid death. Oh, that's, that's a good thing to listen to. And uh, sometimes you can verify that, that, that it was correct. Unfortunately, it'd be nice to think that you just trusted yourself and things turned out well, but you know, you probably weren't ever in real danger. I wish that was the case. <laughs> That was the case. Oh, no. Sometimes afterwards you find out, sure enough, those boots running up the stairs had guns, you know, and thank God the room just shook. And it's like, it was like, just get yeah. out. And it was a sense of death. Like I was already dead. It felt like I was already dead. This one wow. time you're dead now, unless you get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thank God for, listening to those moments man thank god for listening to them i mean i really yeah. do that and uh yeah um 
Yeah, have you ever, uh, what was it? The other experience that I had that a tribute to my Holy Guardian Angel was being literally pushed out of traffic. Um, so like, uh, what was it? I was on my bicycle and for whatever reason, it was really at the nadir of um, uh, my depression. So I was really kind of out of it. And I ended up looking, it was one of those weird diagonal, um, what was it, diagonal intersections. I ended up looking at the wrong traffic light and just uh, completely out of it, like bicycling um, to the other side of the street when there were tr- cars coming to, into my uh, from the left that I was completely oblivious to because I was so out of it. Stopped dead on a dime, swiveled my bike. Like momentum doesn't work that way. I, I, I need. I should have been I needed to slow down instead of literally just stopping, losing all momentum. Was able to reorient my bike while two cars swerved past me on either side. Like, yeah, and, and so it also realized <laughs> got a chastise of just like not taking good enough care of my life, even though I didn't. I didn't have a lot of regard for it at the time, but I also felt immensely ashamed afterwards. Like. <laughs> You really should not be uh, treating your life so flippantly. So it was really, uh, it was really profound. Yeah. Once I even like had to, I was urged even to do something like dangerous in itself, like so dangerous, I would never do it in a million years and illegal. And I (laughs) was urged to do it or I would die. Wow. Because I did it, did I survive? When I played back the events, I was like, if I had stayed legal, stayed safe, and been like, get away, in voice of my holy angel, go, leave me alone. <laughs> and the voice said, accelerate as fast as you can. And I was in my buddy's Porsche that I was born because he had got signed by Universal Records in the Ukraine, oddly mm-hmm. enough. Wow. Um, and so I gunned it, and I went really, like, you know, top gear. And I blasted through this light that right before it turned green. Wow. Right? And just as I was exiting the latter side of the intersection, this car came out of nowhere and just like speeding through a red light. Wow. Had I actually stayed at my current pace, I would have gone through at a safe speed, a green light, and been T-boned by someone speeding through a red. Yeah. But because, so that was like terrifying. And I was like, thank God I listened. Yes. I to see that coming and I would have had right away, but I still would have been fucked Mm -hmm. if I hadn't listened. That could be a dangerous story for people out there to interpret willy nilly, but it's just, it's just case in point of something that like, there's something watching out for us and, you know, heaven help you if you don't listen at times, but you know, be safe. Yeah, yeah, and that's. Aaron, I mean, he likes to to like have a bit more, a bit more fun here first. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I think that um, you know, learning to listen is like a lost skill in our society. Like people of are so pressured into the logical way of seeing things that they literally gaslight themselves into not believing all of their magical and spiritual experiences. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Amen. Well, we're we're heading towards the four-hour point. Should we call it here? Oh, sure. Yeah, I was uh, game for any questions you have. I've had an amazing time. Thank you so much, Roger. Very welcome. I'm I'm glad we met in uh, Angela's great symposium. Everyone should join her Patreon group 
and uh, get to enjoy the elect quality of the lectures she's doing. So there, some of those are amazing lectures behind that paywall. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, very like, you know, it's, it's, you know, you see it's, some of them are just, it's, it's almost a shame they have to be behind a paywall, but they do um, because more people would really love them, but yeah, they're, they're there and it's a great little community. It's just tough. It's like, 8 p.m. on a Sunday morning for us West Coasters, but that's a that's the price you got to pay to hang out with Dr. Puka and all of her cool crew. So it's well worth it. And uh, yeah, let's shout that out. Shout it yeah. out. Support these folks, especially these academics, because if we don't, they will go away. They'll they'll have to turn to other other avenues. So we should should definitely encourage their their goals. Them succeeding is us is us succeeding in a very cultural way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been part of Angela's symposium for years. And that was actually the first uh, place I got to talk to other people about magic. Um, so it's been it's been astonishing for me, like how her community has grown and uh, the quality of the lectures she's putting out is fantastic. And yeah, I always get a chance to promote her whenever I get a chance. So yeah, so this is us promoting it. Personally, it's 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 definitely one of the best groups I think you could join uh, on uh, on the Patreon uh out there great value great value yeah well, thanks for being on magic without fears where what's yes. your, people find you what's your facebook group uh facebook group is esoterica cult science and all things magic uh and uh hopefully we can put a link in the description and uh my website is marcusmatter.net and you can uh find me at also at the esotericmagicshop.com uh which we're currently getting up um, so then yeah, we'll be doing, uh, ritual recordings, ritual guides, and all kinds of products that are interested to, uh, interesting to people who like magic. Yeah. Wonderful. And, uh, and you do a Sunday zoom hangout. Yes. Yeah, so if you want to do, uh, the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram and the middle pillar with me, uh, and with anyone else who's uh, showing up, we have a nice, um, uh, constant cast of people who do magic with us is about 10 people, give or take. And, uh, you can join the group and you'll get an invite. Uh, you'll see the events page and you can uh, start to do magic with other people. Start to experience that shared energy that we all love and start to really, uh, yeah, get into it. Start to uh, develop, uh, um, you know, friends who do magic, uh, which is really fun to have. So many solo practitioners out there, we need to meet, we need to, uh, hang out. It's a, it's a good time. Well, I would love for you to, yeah, can grow the Boulder scene because Colorado's always sounded like a cool place to me. I have uh, very good friends in Boulder and I've had family there in the past and, uh, I've, yeah, connections to the Naropa Institute, which is a very cool, very, very cool school. I mean, for people who I, I constantly am worried that people, young people or new people, that people aren't discovering Allen Ginsberg. This is what, mm -hmm. this is what Naropa is just about Ginsberg to me. I know they do. <laughs> even get a master's of divinity there but really all you should do is read alan ginsburg um mm -hmm. not really but it's a it's a it's a great i love the fact how do you love this that if you were to read alan ginsburg's howl today you'd be banned from the internet but yet that was the poem that was the case in the in the legal suits in the law courts that established our current profanity laws and censorship rules really the book they tried to ban I've got it. I grabbed it because to me, it's just, I never leave home without, oh, it's just right. one of the books of poetry. I mean, Sunflower Sutra is, oh, this oh. is a, even a picture of a, a, a Joe Chance who passed away uh, during a brain surgery and he was an adept in our temple and one of the best around. He then was in uh, Andrew Wheeler's, I think. No, 
what's this, Webs, open source order, the Golden Dawn in California for a while um, before they shut down. But yeah, great, great collection of poems. Yeah, this they tried to ban this when it came out. There was a huge famous legal case. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a movie about that law case with John Hamm as the lawyer and uh, and Ginsburg uh-huh. by, uh, you know, James Franco. Uh, it does it mm-hmm. wow. Ginsburg. And that was the poem that settled the the rights for us to express ourselves and share these things. And now they've just found another way to basically ban it. Because uh, <laughs> it's illegal in Canada, if I was to read this, if I was to record myself reading, put it on YouTube, I'd have my channel removed permanently. Um, but of course, it's illegal to even read the entire Bible out loud now in Canada. Like, so many uh, have been made illegal to say in public. Um, I don't actually know which ones, but yeah, I think you'd find out only too late. <laughs> I don't yeah. know going on up here it's just chaos it's just fucking crazy and no one's speaking their mind anymore when you hear canadians talk it's a lot like i hear about those con- countries you know where nothing like you know yeah I, even when i talked i was talking hanging out pride this weekend we had our pride weekend for bc day and like i was talking to people about this and they were talking about it too like and you know and it was pride and like they're scared to speak people are scared to say what they have to say they're, they're just saying like we're just shutting down basically as a, as a people we're shutting down our our capacities for thought is Canadian because it's, it's too dangerous to speak and think it's not too dangerous to speak. It's too dangerous to think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, magic thrived under those conditions. I mean, all the secret societies were formed because you couldn't say anything in public. And so you had to find, uh, found these secret societies where you could actually say what you wanted to say. So, you know, may end up being a good thing. So it's good for us as, as, uh, educators. Yeah, totally. I mean, good time for magic. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like, uh, if you don't like, I don't know, if you don't like what society is giving you, change it. Create your own world. Start to start to do some magic. Start to expand the boundaries of possibility. System for political magic. Like the Aethers is a system of political magic. It is, yeah. Got got Michael Stanwyck's new book on the Aethers, and uh, my advice would be to not use it for sectarian ends. Like I know, I know Scott Stenwick definitely uses it to, uh, for to to get very specifically, very targetedly, to help mm-hmm. Democratic candidates. So you could, you know, people on the other side could fight back against that. Or my take is, what if we target it just to get better people in there and to inspire better people to do that? Inspire those people to listen to the good angels of their nature instead of the 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 wicked, you know. Totally. Thing. Yeah, I mean, I. I love uh, what Dion Fortune wrote in the Magical Battle of Britain, like the idea that we need to build up our side rather than tear down the other side. Like even in the midst of World War II, if there was ever a time where it was okay to tear down the other side, it was definitely against Nazi Germany. But uh, even within those conditions, he's like, no, I just want to build up Britain. I just want to make Britain as amazing as possible and do all the magic for that. I think that's brilliant. I think that's definitely the way to do it. Beautiful. Beautiful. And what what a great note to end on. So. Thanks awesome. for your friend. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed listening to this and uh we'll talk to you guys soon. Goodbye. Um. This summer's must-read mystery is Meredith Adamos Not Like Other Girls. A girl search for her missing classmate digs up dangerous secrets in this unputdownable feminist thriller. Perfect for fans of Veronica Mars and a good girl's guide to murder. And now gambling terms. Push, a wager that results in a tie. Even money. Bet with the same payout as you wager. Legit. Knowing where it's truly legal to gamble in Colorado. 
You can enjoy legal gaming in Blackhawk, Central City, Cripple Creek, as well as licensed online sports and off-track betting in Colorado. Play legit and gamble only where it's legal. Learn more now at playlegitco.com. A message from the Colorado Division of Gaming. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. Diving deep into the practices and reality tunnels of the esoteric and the occult. Check out Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast, where I interview practicing occultists, do book reviews, and much more. Check us out on YouTube, Red Circle, and many other podcast platforms. 